You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. In Northern Australia, there are 5,000 square miles of sand, scrub, and searing heat. A desolate, primitive place that can take a man and destroy him. They call it the Outback, rated R. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Pleasure to be here. Also with us this week is Mr. Maurice Brzezinski of the See, Here and Love That Album podcast. Before we start, can I get either of you to a beer? This week we're looking at the 1971 film from director Ted Kotcheff, Wake and Fright, also known as Outback. The film tells the tale of John Grant, played by Gary Bond. He's stuck way back in the Outback in Tibunda, where he's a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. He's no Conrack, as he wants to get the hell out of there, and the end of his contract can't come soon enough. When Christmas holiday rolls around, he's excited to get to Sydney as fast as he can, but before he can do that, however, he stops over in Bundayama, Yaba, where he manages to lose all his money betting and spends the rest of the film drifting from one situation to another. There's going to be a lot of beer and many spoilers in this episode. If you can't handle either of those things, please go watch the movie, have a drink, maybe have a pint, and come back to the discussion. Maitland, when was the first time that you saw Wake and Fright, and what did you think? I just saw Wake and Fright about 15 years ago. I didn't see it theatrically. I knew that it did play in New York very briefly, but I did not see it then. So I saw it for the first time on DVD after having heard about it for years. And it was one of those movies that did not disappoint. And those are relatively rare, particularly after you've seen an awful lot of exploitation, offbeat, not quite mainstream movies over the years. There are all kinds of movies that have these tremendous reputations. Everybody says, oh, my God, you're going to die when you see this. And it doesn't happen, which I suppose is a good thing. But uh, Wake and Fright was not a disappointment. It really was a knock-your-socks-off kind of movie where I got to the end of it and just all I could think was, first, wow, and second, I don't think I'm ever going to Australia. If I were a member of the Australian Tourist Board, I think that this would be at the absolute bottom of my list of films to show to people to encourage them to come to my country. How about you, Morris? When was the first time you saw this? Well, I'm embarrassed to say that my first viewing was only since you asked me to be on the show uh, several months ago. I started out by reading Kenneth Cook's novel, then followed up with a film, and I was so relieved to see that it lived up to all the hype. As we'll probably discuss further on, there's a lot of historical context in the history of Australian cinema as to why this film was important. But just on a you know first viewing without any consideration of historical context, it felt like it sucked all the air out of the room for me. The main character, John Grant, lurches from one horrible situation to another, you know, and most of it of his own making, and it was just completely terrifying for me. And the thing is, on paper, it almost seems really banal because, you know, the story, man has stopped over in Blandtown, drinks too much, is overwhelmed by hospitality of townspeople, goes hunting, then tries to kill himself. I mean, that's basically it, until the kills himself. What? He, he kills himself because of people's hospitality, but, you know, that's how it really is on paper. 
And it, in a way, it sort of made me think, you know, after the first viewing, that it was like a, a Twilight Zone meets, well, not quite Groundhog Day, but that's the closest I want to come to it. And I, I was just waiting for Rod Serling to come out of from behind the curtains and say something like, you know, meet John Grant, a man who is going to be driven to the depths of despair from drinking too much beer. All this while one foot in the Twilight Zone. I remember reading about this movie in the Video Search of Miami catalog when it was under the title Outback, and it was really tough to find. I don't know if it was off of a television broadcast or where it was. And, of course, the the Video Search of Miami catalog was definitely known for its uh, hyperbole or for really harping on the most exploitive parts of things. So if there was, you know, I don't know, a, a pillow fight in a movie or something, it'd be like, See girls pummel each other with pillows until the feathers fly. Things like that. <laughs> this one, of course, it was like brutal kangaroo hunt. And so that's the only thing I knew about this movie going in. And I really, it kind of put me off from, from seeing it for a lot of years until it got the restoration and people were talking about how great it was. And then it just felt like this revelation of all these people like, oh my God, how did we not see this movie before? And I'm like, this is the kangaroo hunt movie. Oh man, I really don't know if I want to see this. And when I finally watched it, yeah, that part is brutal. But my God, this whole movie is brutal, and it really put the zap on my head. It was it was just a terrific, terrific film. But to me, it really is a companion piece to Deliverance. You could put them on a double bill, and they would fit together flawlessly, despite the fact that they take different, take place in two different countries. The color palette is completely different. Wake and Pride is all that burnt yellow and orange. Deliverance is all green and dark blues. But they are about exactly the same thing, which is men being driven into a state of degradation that they couldn't even have imagined when they started out on, on what is in one case just a good guys together adventure and in the other just a stopover in a town on the way to take a plane to Sydney. They're, they are very much alike in their complete and utter relentlessness in their destruction of their male protagonists. It's interesting, Maitland, that you mentioned specifically about the colours you know, and deliverance being you know, greens and blues because uh, I saw in an interview that came on the Blu-ray that I have with uh, with Ted Kotcheff, how he said that he deliberately went for the reds and yellows and browns and he distinctly did not want greens and blues in the film because that would have represented something warm and uh, you know not something harsh like the yellows and reds that he ended up going for. And yet in Deliverance, the uh, blues and greens that he uses, as you say, ends up with something that's a very, very harsh, degrading story. Yeah, this movie almost hurts your eyes to look at it at times. You can really empathize with John Grant when he's out there in that beating sun and just you want to be like him and put on your sunglasses. But even when he puts on his sunglasses, it doesn't seem to matter. He still seems to be just in this harsh, harsh environment of this sun-bleached world that he's traveling through. I think it's very much like the American West in that you can see that that's not a landscape that pale-skinned, pale-eyed people were meant to live in. It's a place that wasn't meant for people like John Grant. And yet there he is in the middle of it. And before he ever does anything, before he makes a mistake, before he starts hanging out with the wrong people, he's in a place where he basically shouldn't be, which is very much the history of English colonialism, and which is where you get any number of narratives that are expressly about people of European descent who place themselves in countries that they are not fit to live in. Well, and he's not just 
the he's not a typical Australian. He's not even Australian. He's coming over from the UK, and it puts him at odds with even the people that have been there for so many years and who have adapted, maybe not perfectly to the environment, but who have you know made their their way and have kind of accepted the world that they live in. Who you know are fine drinking beer all the time and who are okay with all the dust and the flies and everything. He definitely is very uncomfortable with this world that he's now in. And I find him to be a terrific character because he's not necessarily the most likable guy in the world. He has a bad attitude about everything. He wants to get out of his teaching contract. You know, he's kind of this indentured servant to the education board. You say you're a slave. What do you mean by that? You wouldn't know how our education authorities get teachers for the outback. Wouldn't have a clue, mate. Our new teacher has to post a bond for a thousand dollars. That thousand guarantees you'll serve out your contract wherever they send you. Oh, well, I suppose they know what they're doing. You clever blacks never like to stop in the one spot long, do you? Depends on the place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, never mind, Jack. You can always come to the Yabba for your holidays. Good luck. Yes, that's something to look forward to. What about another beer? And he still has at least another year to go before he can get out of this teaching contract. And he's literally, he's out in the boonies. He is so far out of the way. And he's teaching in this one-room schoolhouse. And, you know, here I am thinking about, like, Little House on the Prairie, or I mentioned Conrack before, and all of these, like, you know, heartwarming tales of the teacher who makes a difference. He just seems like he's so miserable at the beginning of the film. You know, the first thing we see, other than that amazing pan across the landscape, is him in this room with all of these kids who look bored out of their mind, and they're just waiting for him to dismiss them, and they can go on their holiday, and he can go on his, and he's desperate to get back to Sydney to get back for him to civilization because nothing else is really matters to him at all other than getting to some place where he fits in a little bit more because he does not fit into any place that we see him at all in this film. And yet, really, he's not one of these people who um, is as sophisticated as he seems to think he is. I mean, in one of the uh, very early scenes in the film where we see him making the train journey from Tibunda to Bundanyaba. Uh, he, he falls asleep and he dreams of his girlfriend on the beach, and that's the one scene in the film where we get to see you know, the, uh, a colour that is not uh, yellow or red. He's dreaming of the beach, his girlfriend, and she comes out of the water, and he's lying down on the beach having a beer, and what does he do? He rubs the beer between her breasts. So, you know, he's, he's not the sophisticated guy that he seems to think of. he is, and yet he spends a good chunk of the film in uh, Bundanyaba, it, it's this contradiction. He spends his time thinking that he's better than the locals, and yet, as we see, especially when he gets to meet Dick and Joe, that he's trying to do things that will please them. He goes on the gun shoot with them, and he tries to shoot a fox that they think is uh, trivial. Um, it's not, you know, they're, they're out there strictly to go hunting the kangaroos. They patronize him, but they know what he's trying to do. But he's desperately trying to play catch-up in some scenes, and he's trying to uh, dismiss them in others. What you've introduced there is the main underlying driver of this movie, which is that it is about codes of masculinity. And in the case of, James, uh, of, of Mr. Grant, it's about not living up to them in any respect. 
And you can tell that he knows from the very beginning that he cannot live up to it. He's not trying at the beginning because he's secure in his, his identity as the school teacher. He does believe he's a sophisticated guy. He's got an education. He absolutely thinks he's better than they are. But once he begins this descent, he realizes that if for no other reason than as a mode of self-defense, he's got to try and fit in with these guys. And that starts this desperate downward spiral because he can't do it. Yeah, once he gets to the Yaba... He just has this whole attitude. He meets uh, Jock Crawford, who's played by Chips Rafferty, and he just looks at him askance so much, and he always seems to be smirking at the locals and their customs, and aren't they backwards, and really it's all about the big city. He's he's like, you know, Doc Hollywood or something being stuck in this backwoods town and really wants to get, you know, back to Hollywood and back to his his client list. And here we have John Grant, who's just like looking at these guys and just shaking his head and really is very much a smarmy asshole. And it's interesting that even though he is a smarmy asshole, he still is our protagonist. And we kind of want to see him learn a lesson, though the lesson that he learns, the amount of stuff that he goes through is a little much. You know, it's almost like a, a, a torture film of John Grant. And at the end of the day, you both feel for him and it's almost like he's gotten a little bit of what he deserves. Of course, there's judgment on both sides, even from that early, early on meeting with Jock Crawford, because, you know, while he's smirking at all the people in, uh, in the bar and how much they drink and this is all their entertainment. Uh, you get, we get that line from Jock Crawford in that early conversation where he's gone and explained, oh, I'm an indentured slave to, uh, to the government. And Jock Crawford says, well, you clever blokes never like to stop in one spot for long enough, do you? So he's with one line, boom, he's gone and pulled his house of cards down. He's, uh, he's gone and said, right, well, you know, you're one of those intellectuals who thinks he knows everything. Well, sorry, you're not good enough for this place. And uh, later on in the film where there's that uh, gathering over at uh, Tim and Jeanette Hines' place and there's a great line from uh, Jack Thompson as Dick where um, he's saying to Tim, What's the matter with him? I'd rather talk to a woman than drink. School teacher. Oh. Like that explains absolutely everything. He's an intellectual. They want to. They want to speak to the women. Yeah, yeah, got you. All of that ties into what I think is is the more virulent part of the subtext of this movie, which is that he is presented in every instance as being weak and as being not manly. But the entire manly society surrounding him is incredibly queer. To put Nazi pride a point on it, I mean, the first time you see that bar where he meets Doc. The fact that there is not a single woman in it, except in the segregated lady zone, is on the one hand a cultural thing, one in which the girls have their own thing they do and the guys have another. But on the other hand, it makes the guys have the bar look like a scene out of cruising. And that's exacerbated <laughs> by, the fact, by the fact that whenever John Grant passes somebody, he gets the up and down eye from them. And again, part of that is because he's a stranger and it's extremely clear that he doesn't belong there. But it's also got a very cruisy feel that sets up this entire homosexual degradation subtext. I, I don't really know any more genteel way to put it. And I could put it far less genteelly that goes through this entire film and that is the really defining quality in, in his degradation that culminates in that scene with Donald Pleasance, which I'm sure we'll be discussing at some length later. What color hanky do you think John Grant would be wearing? 
John Grant wouldn't even have a hanky because he's so clueless. Maybe Powers Booth could teach him a lesson. He would need a lesson from somebody because if he realized that, oh, he probably needed a hanky and went to pick one up, he'd pick up a blank, a black hanky and he would be so sorry. Well, he's a stranger to everything. You know, he's a foreigner to the country. He is not a member of this society of men. And I love the scene later when uh, Tim is, is talking to him, this, this guy who's... Uh, really just being very, very nice. I don't see any ulterior motives for him being nice to Grant. And he's asking him all these questions. You know, are you a Buffalo? Are you a Mason? Are you a Roman Catholic? And basically it's all of these different societies and ways that he could find help. You know, if he was a Mason, he could find another Mason in town who would be able to, to help him out. He could find, you know, help at the church, all of these kind of things. But he is a, such an outsider to everything. He has no allegiance to anybody. There's no society that is, is, you know, that he belongs to that would help him out of this situation. So he really has to, you know, Blanche Dubois and rely upon the kindness of strangers. And luckily he finds some fairly nice strangers. Uh, though one of those strangers is Doc. And I, I like that, you know, comparing the book to the movie, we don't necessarily meet Doc until later on at Tim's place. But in here, in the movie, we see him show up a couple times, and he's almost like this kind of devilish-type character, especially him in this black suit. And when he shows up, and he just always seems to be kind of, you know, throw out a couple quick lines, and then John continues on with the rest of the story. It isn't until we are at Tim's for an extended period of time that Doc really shows up in the film. And yet, on first introduction, Doc doesn't seem like such a bad guy. No. He's civil enough. He's not dead drunk when we first meet him, as opposed to a number of other people. And he's willing to have a civil conversation to show Grant where he can get something to eat, uh, give him some advice about the town. And he seems perfectly okay, which, of course, is is the way the devil always first appears. At first, the devil is a gentleman, and then you see his horn. We've got Grant in the Yaba, and I love this whole thing, too, where every time he meets somebody, everybody has to ask, are you new to the Yaba? To the point where he just gets really pissy about it. And he's at this bar with Jock, and he sees this game that they call Two Up, which is a coin toss type game where uh, there's one person in the middle of the, the gaming floor, and he has to consistently throw tails on two coins. And if he does that, what, four times in a row? Or he can win on one. You know, it's just always a matter of, you know, doubling the money and everything. And so after watching this, finally Grant tries to become a member of the Society of Men and actually gets very lucky. And he manages to double his money a few times. So he goes from just a few dollars, sorry, to a a pretty significant amount of money, goes back to his hotel room, is like gloating over the amount of money that he has. (laughs) And then, oh, such a stupid son of a bitch. He decides to go back. He wants to buy himself out of his contract. So he tries to double that money, and when that doesn't work, when he fails at that, he goes and cashes his damn paycheck, all the money that he was going to use to get to Sydney, and loses that as well. And that's really what puts him on this journey for the rest of the film, is just his desire, his greed to get out of that contract, and he really gets punished for that, but good. It's also worth pointing out, once again, on the theme of he really is an unlikable schmuck. 
that when he's first shown that game, the first thing he says is, oh, well, that's a simple little game, isn't it? Yeah, he's, he even puts that down, which is great. You know, he's, he's so far above everybody. And yet, I guess I, I referred at the beginning of the show to uh, Rod Serling stepping out and this being the Twilight Zone. That, so there's some sort of temptation. There's this Twilight Zone magic over the town that draws him in uh, regardless. And so he goes in and plays the game and he meets its consequences. And there's one point I'm wondering whether Ted Kotcheff meant it to be this way because there's all, been all this discussion about this man's descent into hell. And I think that there's a really very, very clever shot, an overhead shot, when John throws the coins that finally seal his time in hell, where I think he loses his first batch of money before cashing the check. And we get this overhead shot. It's from the dark, and we see everyone scattering together their money that he's lost plus their own. And we know at that moment, we know at that moment, right, things have gone to pot for him. He is in hell. This is the start of his descent. And just looking from, at it from uh, overhead, that's what it sort of brought to my mind. I also like, I, I think another thing in that scene was the sound design, because uh, every time someone wins the money, all the uh, guys in the room, they all start gathering for uh, the, the money that they've won. And they're all, there's a whole lot of cheering and shouting and talking to each other. And at that moment where he knows that he's lost everything, Ted Kotcher very cleverly decided there's no noise. We, we don't see the coins. We don't hear the, uh, the uh, gathering of the money from the other guys. We just see the look on John Grant's face, and we know he's lost everything, and then cut to the shot of him lying back on his bed in the hotel. Not even showing the coins. I love that it just focuses in on his face, and that's it. I have to say, Gary Bond, very interesting look to him. I actually spent this whole film looking at him and thinking how remarkably like Peter O'Toole he looked. And I think part of that is that there is a distinct facial resemblance. It's in the cheekbones, it's in the jawline, but it's also in the fact that both of them are naturally extremely pale. And in Lawrence of Arabia, which is certainly the classic image that most of us start with for Peter O'Toole, and in this film, they've both been sunburned before before you get very far into the story. So you're seeing this, this really kind of raw-looking white skin with very pale lips and it, it's kind of an alarming look for a handsome man it, it takes the it takes the prettiness off both of them i saw a lot of guy pierce as well when i was looking at him and i kept thinking if they were to ever remake this film god forbid that guy pierce would be a dead ringer for the john grant role and plus he doesn't even have to work on the accent that much actually yeah you're really really correct although i imagine that would have been more a role for a younger guy pierce than how old he is now. I think uh, it's not like, not like he's a, an old actor or anything like that, but um, I, I imagine the, the youth of John Grant, you know, he's this guy who's just graduated from university and he's one year into his servitude. So um, I think it would need to have been uh, a Guy Pierce of 20 years ago to have done it with the emotional range of Guy Pierce of today. Right, yeah, more like the Guy Pierce of the uh, LA Confidential type era. I will mention actually one other possible connection because have either of you seen the film that Guy Pierce acted in? I think it was John Hillcote directed and Nick Cave wrote the story for called The Proposition. And oh, yeah. That film, while I would have liked to have seen someone apart from Nick Cave write the script, because I think that's where a lot of it falls down, but certainly from the the look of the film, the, the colours that are in the film, and this complete sense of dread is probably a good cousin to uh, 
to Wake and Fright. Yeah, I was surprised there weren't more flies in Wake and Fright. After seeing the proposition, I thought that, you know, you couldn't really walk down the street without being swarmed with flies. <laughs> that movie is just so thick with them. I think Ted Kotcheff only had a budget for lots of dirt to sprinkle on the set rather than flies. Oh, okay. All right. No raw meat being hidden behind, you know, characters' ears or anything? The budget didn't extend to that. <laughs> well, you can see a couple of moments in which John Grant is is brushing off his face, and you can see he, that he's supposed to be warding off flies, or very possibly was warding off flies. Yeah, because one of the first things when we see that classroom, there's a fly going around one of the kids' faces. I'm just like, oh, man, am I in for another trip like the proposition? Of course, there's also that scene in the film where – uh, where John Grant first wakes up in Doc Tyden's hut, and we do get the flies there. So possibly it was a deliberate decision on Ted Kotcheff's part to really not overdo it. So we've got this great moment of him. Yeah, he wakes up. He's trying to. He goes to the, uh, the 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 labor office. He immediately wants to get a job, which is strange. Like he still wants to get to Sydney. That still seems to be his thing. He still wants to get to Sydney, even though he's lost all of his money. And of course, we don't necessarily have his internal monologue as we do in the, in the book, where he's really you know just like trying to figure out like, okay, it only takes me this much to get to Sydney, and maybe I can stay with relatives, or maybe I can stay with my girlfriend, or all these kind of things. And the woman really isn't that much of his girlfriend she's more of a an acquaintance that he kind of has his hope set on and this moment in the movie where he does uh run across uh mr hines uh and who kind of takes pity on him and takes him over to his house introduces him to his daughter jeanette and she's kind of like the the town's bicycle it seems like everybody's had a ride including i think uh Dick and Joe who's played by Jack Thompson and Peter Whittle who show up and they start to drinking and everything and there's a a video out on YouTube where somebody went through and just cut together all the scenes of people drinking beer and um it, what is it like 15 20 minutes long i mean it's it's crazy how often they drink beer in this film i think that video is about two and a half to three minutes long but it seems like 15 20 it's it's it seems like 15 or 20 minutes because they drink their beers fairly quickly actually it was interesting i read in a in an interview or maybe i heard in some commentary Ted Kotcher said that because Chips Rafferty had no uvula, uh, he was able to drink his beer down really quickly without seeing the glug, glug, glug going down. And he was, I think he was the one member of cast who wasn't drinking mock beer or pretend beer. He said to Ted Kotcher, oh, no, 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 that wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be authentic if I wasn't drinking real beer. And Ted said to him, well, you're going to get drunk after all the number of takes we have to do. And he said, I've never been drunk in my life. Just I want to pause real quick to talk about Chips Rafferty because for a lot of years, you know, he was kind of the face of Australian cinema. You know, he was uh, born in the early 1900s and made uh, 40 some films. And he really was like when you thought of an Australian actor for a long time, he was the guy like before this renaissance, before this wave of new films in the 1970s from Australia, he seemed to be the guy who almost represented Australia, other than the guy who was in um, you know, the early years of MASH on TV, who you only saw just a few, he was in a few episodes. <laughs> other than that guy, this was he was the real deal. 
I'd only ever seen a couple of other films with Chips Rafferty, uh, one which I'd actually forgotten he was even in, and there was a film called They're a Weird Mob. It was based on a novel by a fellow called Nino Colotta, although I believe years later it was disproven. It was just an English writer who went and gave himself that name, Nino Colotta, just to tell this story. But that was a story about, once again, about a, an outsider coming into Australian society. This guy, he's... Uh, an, an Italian journalist, he comes to Australia to write some articles for his newspapers, but unlike our main protagonist in Wake and Fright, uh, Nino assimilates quite well into Australian society, and that was at a time where having someone from Italy come into Australia was seen as something exotic. And, you know, the, the story in Wake and Fright is the guy, he's, well, I mean, it, it's debatable whether he really is English. I mean, it's never expressly stated. It's just because Gary Bond was an English actor. But I digress there for a second. So there a weird mob had uh, Chips Rafferty in it. And the only other Chips Rafferty film I'd seen was one that was made during World War II called The Rats of Tobruk. And that was also interesting because that had another actor who you'd know very well in Peter Finch. Yeah, uh, they're a weird mob. Actually, there was an article in uh, the last issue of Cashiers to Cinemart, and it was about that film. And it was one of the uh, just a handful of post-Peeping Tom films that Michael Powell directed. Because after Peeping Tom, that kind of really ruined his reputation. Uh, especially in England, so he looked elsewhere for directing gigs, and that was one of them. I saw There a Weird Mob, I think, about two or three times as a kid on TV, and at the time I thought, wow, this is really, really funny. I think if I were to watch it today, I'm not sure I'd feel so generous to it, but it is interesting as a comparison to this as a story about an outsider who, um, you know, is trying to assimilate, or, well, in this case, in that case, he's trying to assimilate in. In Wake and Fright, he's definitely, well, he is and he's not trying to assimilate, I guess. Yeah, and this is one of those scenes where he definitely fails, which is Tim Hines' daughter, Jeanette, tries to seduce John Grant and uh, leads him out uh, into, you know, into the brush a little bit more. And uh, he's pretty drunk. She's pretty horny. She uh, gets with him, tries to, uh, you know, she's undressing and all this stuff. And he's such not a member of the Society of Men that he can't even have sex with her. He ends up throwing up all over the place instead. And it's just one of, one of many moments of humiliation for him in the film. It's an absolutely spectacular moment of humiliation because there is no greater failure, frankly, than that one. To wind up puking on the ground when a woman has pretty much thrown herself at you and is not unattractive. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Jeanette. She's a bit hard-faced, but she's absolutely fine. You know, the average slightly drunk, horny guy would have been absolutely fine with her. And John Grant winds up vomiting in the bushes. I mean, that is as grim as it can get. That might even be worse than if he had whiskey dick and just couldn't get it up. That might The throwing up might be even more humiliating than not being able to get, get erect. I don't think he can get it up either. I think that's part of the reason why it's all going so badly. I mean, I, I think it is, a, it is an epic fail at both ends. You use the word humiliation. I think the whole film is really about his emasculation because at, at every sense, you've already gone and said that he's trying to prove himself as a man, but at every turn fails. So, you know, he can't win at the gambling game that everyone in the town is, is uh, affiliated with. He can't get it up with Jeanette, and then later on, he's desperately trying to say, hey, look, I shot a fox, I, I, I shot something, and the, 
the Joe and Dick patronize him, you know, yelling out, come and get your beer, Johnny boy. Now you're one of us. Yeah, good on you, Johnny boy. And even when he's successful in shooting a fox or shooting uh, a kangaroo, he's still sort of gone and failed in their eyes. So I'm hesitant to talk about the kangaroo hunt. I don't know if anybody wants to try to un- unwrap that little present. Let's go behind the scenes first. Maybe we'll make that easier for you. Uh, in uh, all, all the interviews that he's done, Ted Kotcheff has gone and said that he found this, not just, I guess, for legal reasons, but uh, he, he found it emotionally really difficult to work out how he was going to make that section of the film. And so he edits both the scenes of the four of them, uh, Joe, Dick, Doc Tyden, and John Grant himself, in in uh, the vehicle sort of going through the desert with scenes of real hunters actually going for their kangaroos, going for their targets, because these guys were going through the desert anyway and doing their kangaroo cull of a nightly basis. So they said, right, well, you can just document what we do. So I guess it's a, a mixture of real film with unofficial cinema verite. But I think probably the most uh, emotionally rough moment would have been for the actors. And they, they got some zoologists come out to supervise this on set where I think it's Joe who the first time he grabs one of the kangaroos by the tail. He's sort of fighting at it before taking a knife out and ripping its guts, although we don't actually see him doing that with the knife. But, the, but you do see him wrestling with the kangaroo and then later on you see... Uh, John Grant himself doing the same thing. And I imagine that that would have been fairly emotional and also fairly rough because I can tell you that Tangling with a Kangaroo, they're not the sweet, loving little things that you saw in our uh, television series Skippy of the 1960s. Skippy, Skippy, Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. Have you ever boxed a kangaroo, Morris? Well... I wasn't sure whether I was going to reveal this story on the podcast, Mike, but in fact, I have actually been cut in the, uh, my right thigh by a kangaroo, but that's a long really? story. Yes, I really have. Uh, my um, my family, we went out, I think about 12, 13 years ago. My son was, oh no, it would have been more than that. My son was about two years old, and we all went out to a, a very, very strange, unsupervised farm or zoo or whatever you want to call it we ended up in a field that we didn't know was you know had a had a kangaroo somewhere around the corner shouldn't have even been there and they shouldn't have allowed us to be in there and a kangaroo went and assaulted my wife and i just had to get it off her and and um it 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 gave me this look i don't know if you mind me saying this on the on the show but the kangaroo gave me this look as if to say you're fucked and uh, it ripped a hole in my uh, in my right side but uh, my right thigh but because it was so quick I barely felt the pain but it was very very scary and until the supervisor of this farm or zoo came to rescue us um, I really thought we were going to be dead so um, there you go I wasn't sure that I was going to reveal that story to you but there you go all your listeners now know that I have a nice scar not too dissimilar from the scars in Jaws that they talk about that's my uh, symbol of um of having survived the, the tail with the kangaroo. Skippy, 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 what was it that actually cut you? His foot. Uh, those those uh, those claws are sharp. They're very very sharp. So uh, back in the sixties, we had this television series I just mentioned called Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, and 
Skippy can do everything. It can rip open a bottle of beer for you. It can uh, alert you that that uh, Sonny is in trouble. It's your friend. It's a really sweet thing. Look it up. They're on. I'm sure there are episodes on YouTube. I watched that as a kid, and I actually could sing at least one verse of the Skippy song if I was going <laughs> to. That show was great. And as a child, it absolutely made me love kangaroos until I uh, started watching nature programs and then learned, as you have just described, that they're really not as sweet and cute as they appear. They are not. I think that this is one of those scenes, the kangaroo hunt is one of those scenes where my brain fills in a lot more than I'm actually seeing, but I feel that kind of horror that I think John Grant is feeling at the time. And I'm, I, I don't know about the actors on this actual thing, but I know that the character of John Grant, at least I would hope that he does not necessarily feel good about the things that are going on with this, or maybe he does. What do you guys think? I think he feels absolutely terrified. That's for sure. And he's struggling hard to, you know, show his manhood, which is something we've been discussing all through this uh, conversation. But he makes that fatal flaw that I spoke of earlier of looking at the kangaroo's eyes. He even says, oh, we can't shoot it. it, it we can't kill it. It's, it's just a baby. It's just a baby. So he is getting these pangs of conscience, and yet he doesn't want to fail in Joe's and Dick's and Doc's eyes. So he forces himself to go through it. You know, the, the guilt he feels at killing a roo and killing a baby roo at that is, you know, is not up to his feelings of wanting to look good in the eyes of these other people. He's, he's something, his narcissism overtakes his conscience, whatever little there is. And I think it's also very clear, once again, that it's making the distinction between these guys who have grown up in the outback in a very small, very rough town and John Grant, who clearly has it, even if he is not English, though he appears to be, he is certainly not somebody who has been living in a place like the Yabba. Sydney is a city. Wherever he came from before that is a city. It's, it's a, not to be judgmental, a civilized place in a way that the Yabba just isn't. The Yabba is pretty wild and pretty rough, and he is not up to it. I think the thing that gets me the most is just the waste that's around this hunt, and especially that last shot of the hunt where the guys are leaving, and it's just those corpses of the kangaroos where it, it, it almost looks like Guernica or something. Just the the way that it's like half a kangaroo here, half a kangaroo there, and they're kind of set up in just this tableau of carnage. I think that's one of the biggest gut punches this film has to offer. I think you're absolutely right. And I don't think that that's necessarily also a city person's sensibility. I think, I think most people who are hunters are not out to conduct a wanton slaughter. I mean, perhaps they're only talking a good game, but they talk about it being a psychological thing about it being on some level trying to be fair and meeting animals on their own ground and having it be a real hunt rather than it being a you know, a barrel shoot. But that kangaroo hunt is absolutely a barrel shoot. Yeah, I think even Ted Nugent would have problems with this hunt. I sincerely hope so. Because they're not even hunting them really for meat. I mean, there's that one mention of Doc taking the quote-unquote best bits of the kangaroo and that's about it. I mean, he does eat bits of kangaroo, even though he's seen kind of like we find later or, or just slightly before this, that he is a drunk. He's an outsider. He's an outsider as well, but he's one outsider who has really integrated himself with the society of the Yaba. 
But even then, he's seen as a little strange because he's one who eats kangaroo, and it seems like kangaroo is the stuff that you would, you know, shoot for or use for your dog food. But these guys aren't into the idea of eating these things at all. They're just out there to kill them. They're, it's just for the pleasure of the kill. Not for any of this, you know, the, the typical hunter BS stuff of like, I eat what I kill kind of stuff. And, you know, oh, we, we're just like the Native Americans. We use every part of, you know, what we kill. We use every part of the buffalo. And it's like, yeah, no, yeah, you guys, you don't skin them. You think that the, the hides are ratty. You don't eat the meat. You don't use these for anything. You're just out here for pleasure of seeing something die. The fact that Doc is the one who actually eats kangaroo meat is interesting because he, as he says earlier to John Grant, he's living on no money at all. He can't buy anything. Right. He really is a scavenger. And so he's living on the kindness of strangers and whatever he can scavenge. And I'm sure that includes kangaroo tail. He seems like the kind of, I don't know, the the mirror version of John Grant. He seems like the version of John Grant that could be and that Grant would definitely not want to be. While watching this, I was sort of thinking about other characters who end up in John Grant's situation and how they adapt, because at no stage does John Grant try to adapt, although he's only really there ostensibly for, what is it, three nights. But he at no stage makes any effort. So when you sort of think with the TV show, the early 90s, uh, Northern Exposure and, you know, Joel Fleischman is, I mean, it, mind you, it works over a whole lot longer period of time, but he eventually sort of comes around to, you know, the people of the town. And even if you sort of think back to uh, the film from the early 80s from Bill Forsythe, Local Hero, and he's actually quite the opposite. He, he's charmed by the people of the town and he basically wants to swap his city life for, for living there. So I think they're sort of interesting comparisons. Yeah. I mean, there are so many fish out of water tales. I mean, this is kind of the, the opposite of Crocodile Dundee. Maitland, when you went and mentioned earlier on in the show that Wake and Fright certainly doesn't work as a very good advertisement for the Australian Tourism Board, I imagine that Crocodile Dundee was probably hatched in uh, government circles as, we need to make a film to counteract all the damage done by Wake and Fright. <laughs> and indeed, it Get Hogan on the phone. talking about shrimp on the Barbie, so it worked. Well, yeah, whereas in Wake and Fright, they sort of thought, well, throwing a kangaroo on the Barbie, that's not going to work, is it? No. In recent years, uh, we've also brought the tourists with Wolf Creek, so we seem to be doing something right. Hang on, wait, wait. Well, there was that shrimp on the Barbie movie, right? The shrimp on the Barbie. Australia, the land down under. They gave us the boomerang and that crocodile man. We decided to return the favor. Yeah. Oh, here I come. All right, everybody off your knees. Cheech Marin is Carlos Munoz. <laughs> when his struggling Mexican restaurant needs money. We're ruined. If we don't have $5,000 by next week, the bank gets everything. You'll be surprised what he'll try. <laughs> I think I just went way too deep. Sorry. <laughs> this hunt and in, in it really it's a two stage thing because we've got the the hunt during the day, there's more drinking, there's more hunting at night, there's more drinking, there's going to the the establishment and th- basically trashing this guy's pub and everything. And then after that, there's this drunken night with John Grant and Doc. 
And that's probably the other most memorable point of the film, this kind of drunken wrestling that goes on between these guys. And I have to admit, the first time that I saw it, I didn't necessarily pick up on the more amorous uh, aspects of this. (laughs) And it wasn't until I saw it a second time where I'm just like, wait a second. It's actually interesting that the shot that absolutely clinches the more amorous interpretation of that scene isn't actually in that scene. It occurs right near the end of the film where you're getting that quick montage of all of the highlights and lowlights of John Grant's experience in the Yabba. That's where you see a shot of him on his back across a table, I think, and Donald Pleasant's on top of him kissing him on the mouth. That's when when you absolutely cannot put your fingers in your ears and say, I I can't hear you, I can't hear you. No matter how much denial you might want to be in about what you saw, that, that shot makes it very, very clear what you saw. Another pointer to it is one of the one of the rolling things throughout the film is a light being shined on something. So well, there's a few moments like where John Grant first comes to uh, the two-up school and there's a light shining in his face and he looks up and sees the light shining on his face in uh, when, when he's pitching the coins in the two-up school. And every sort every time there's a light shows it's it basically showing he's a victim of something. And when you sort of put that scene at the end that you're talking about, Maitland, into context with um, that bit just before, I don't know if you want to call it the seduction uh, of uh, Doc on John Grant, they're swinging that light in the hut. They're swinging that light on his face, and John doesn't look very, very comfortable at all. And uh, that's, that's Doc's means of seduction. Well, and picking up on that, I mean, when they do their night hunting, that's kind of their first weapon is shining that big light onto those ruse and kind of shocking them with that. Right, right. I was, I was just sort of thinking because we're talking about the whole thing of hunting and the masculinity and probably another film that we could sort of compare that to is, uh, Chimino's The Deer Hunter because that whole first hour, that's, you know, that's the time for these guys to, they, they're bonding with each other over the, over the hunt. And the other one who's really taking it seriously, of course, is a Robert De Niro character in that, but there's a lot of masculinity, a lot of testosterone going on in the first hour of, uh, of that film. And I'm also sort of thinking that another point of reference for the deer hunter, strangely enough, would be the, the two up game because the whole thing with, the Russian roulette scenes in The Deer Hunter, you know, it really ratchets up the tension and not that there's anything about life and death going on in the two-up game, but when you sort of see what John Grant's going for in risking all his wages and all that money that he's already earned, the tension is is just, for me, even, even after having watched this several times, still seems unbearable to me. I think it's very interesting you comparing it to The Deer Hunter because... The first time I ever saw The Deer Hunter was in a women in film class, so talking about gender roles and the hypermasculinity and the transference of fear of women onto the Asian characters and all these kind of things. So it's very, you know, it plays right into that. I can definitely see where you're coming from when it comes to the comparisons between these two films, especially in terms of masculinity and hypermasculinity. I also have to say, as a woman, when women look at those kind of scenes in movies or look at guys doing that kind of bro stuff, what all of us think, and what I'm sure both of you have heard from someone at some point is, Jesus, guys, get a room. 
I mean, it's <laughs> very grabby and very, uh, uh, there's there's a lot of contact there that we cannot help but interpret as, as a displaced sexual thing. Yeah, really, when you think about this movie, there's only really like two women characters that get very many lines at all. I mean, it's like the woman at the hotel and Jeanette just seem to be the only ones who are really allowed to speak. Otherwise, this is such a world of men. And just, yeah, they... they uh, uh, they're bonding in very interesting ways. Let's just say that. I think well, also, it goes back to my feeling about the bar the first time you see it, where it is just a sea of men, and they're all all over each other. Very touchy and very, very close and very everybody assessing everybody else in one way or another. It's really hard not, not to read it that way. I also sort of thought that in that scene, that first scene in the bar, where it's obvious that John Grant still sticks out, uh, even though women are not allowed into this world of men, I think that he's sort of seen as being feminine. When we first see Jock Crawford come up to John Grant, what's the first thing he does? He lights his cigarette, which in the movies is very much the domain of men doing to women. And I think that really is the first point of his emasculation in a very small way. It goes further and further, but I think that's where it all starts. And I think you also see it in the two-up game when they bring him to the front of the crowd as though, in the same way that if there were a woman in that room and, and she had showed herself to be sort of a player, everybody would pull her up to the front and say, all right, let's get the little lady up front here. That's, right, that's right. That cigarette lighting when John Grant comes back to the city, comes back to the Yaba after he leaves Doc's hut, and um, Jock is there, buys him a beer, and you know John Grant is like the only thing that would really help me out even more is if you gave me a cigarette. And yeah, he lights that cigarette. That flame from that lighter is crazy, and like you see a little bit of a wince from from Gary Bond. And I always wonder if that was a real thing or if you know that was a, a characterization because I would probably jump away from a flame that size as well. I mean, it's almost a joke at how tall this flame is from that lighter. Right. And not just that, but Chuck puts the cigarette in his mouth, which is a very intimate thing. doesn't give it to him in his hand. He puts it into his mouth. Didn't Sigmund Freud, though, say that sometimes a cigarette is just a cigarette, Maitland? A cigarette thrust into your mouth by this very hunky uh, Australian <laughs> dude? Yeah. yeah. Oh, just one final point I wanted to make about the Jock Crawford, John Grant relationship, if you will, is in the early part of the film where Grant introduces himself as John Grant and uh, Jock keeps calling him Jack as a different way of calling someone John. But at the very end of the film where he's seen him disheveled and he realizes uh, you're you're a disgrace, you're nothing, he calls him John. And I think that's a very conscious thing. And the way that John comes into town, no shirt under his coat, blood all over his coat, carrying a rifle. And I love how people are just like, do-do-do, walking by him. (laughs) He just looks like such a mess. I mean, that he was carrying a gun. I know this is in Texas, but he just carrying a gun in broad daylight, walking down the street. I was like, okay, yeah, there's something wrong here. Like, if this was happening now, there'd be 50 police cars on this guy, you know. It wouldn't be up to just, you know, the one constable, Jock Crawford, there to check out his story, make sure that everything in his suitcases is what he says that it is. I found, I always find that scene to be interesting where he's just like, has to check the suitcases to make sure that what John has said is in there is in there. Like he said, 
books. Not that I doubted you, of course, John. This whole post-hunt, post-doc sequence it's just amazing of of you know coming back into the yaba getting his drink getting his beard getting his suitcases throwing pretty much everything out of his suitcases at least all the books and then trekking across country getting some rides and everything and finally he ends up at this place where he gets a ride from this trucky to he says that he's going to the city and sure enough john gets dropped in the city not Sydney though. He gets dropped in the Yaba because to John, Sydney is a city and Yaba is just the asshole of the world. And this guy to him, yeah, that's, that's a city. That's a, that's a major city for this guy. And it's just like this almost like Sisyphean road trip of John just leaving town and getting driven right back into town. It is that twilight zone thing that you were talking about earlier, Morris, of, you know, you, you think you can get out of here, but no, all the, all roads lead back into the Yaba. Well, it's been a long time since I've seen this, but there was that film, I think, uh, Red Rock West. Was that with Dennis Hopper? And the characters keep getting out of town and keep coming back into town against their best interests and against their best will, but it's been so long since I've seen that. It almost reminds me of like the 13th floor or something where it's like there is nothing outside of town. It's just a computer program outside of town. Everything's going to keep leading you back. It's almost like a, a Philip K. Dick roadmap or something, mm. you know, it just keep bringing you back into the Yaba. And he gets so desperate. And I love when he gets back there, he gets his gun back from this guy. That was the only thing that he could trade for a ride. And the guy hands it back. And he's just like, well, at least the trip cost you nothing. And Grant gets this idea of the real problem of his life right now is Doc. And he gets these flashes, and that's that montage that you're talking about, Maitland. And I love this whole bit of all of these quick cuts and just seeing everything and seeing stuff that we haven't been privy to, seeing kind of fantasies and all this stuff, like the whole idea of Doc at the two-up game, and just that incredible image that you see now associated with Wake and Fright of Donald Pleasance with those coins over his eyes and the two X's on there. It's just fantastic. And I love that that plays in reverse to get those coins up into his eyes just like that. And we've got Grant running to Doc's shack so that he can kill him. And when he gets in there, there is no Doc. And he's just so heartbroken by this whole thing and finally decides to just end it all. And he fails it's at that. Finally manipulation. He can't even take his revenge when he has finally no. screwed himself up to the sticking point And he's going to go and kill the guy who has become the locus of everything that's happened to him. And he's not there. And he can't even succeed at killing himself. I mean, this is one of the most ineffective characters that i've seen in a long time even though i care about this character at the end of the day at the end of the film i care about john grant but he is just yeah as doc says to him as he's leaving town i think a block would want a silver medal at target shooting could hit himself in the head at a range of three inches and then he makes it back to tibunda in the uh, closing scene of the film, the final few seconds of the film, and it's almost like, well, this is like being back in Sydney, really. You know, he's he's out of the Yabba, he's out of the Twilight Zone, and this is some sort of normality to him. It, it might not be what he idealised at the start of the film, but at least it's for him, it's manageable to some to some extent. I wanted to make a real quick mention of John Malon, who's uh, the guy Charlie, who runs the little bar where John Grant has his room 
And he just seems to hate Grant at the beginning and at the end. He just seems to have this look of disdain on his face for Grant every time we see him. And he's like the, the, the signpost of Tabunda almost, you know, the, it's, even though it's across the street from him, but he's like that much of a fixture of town. And when Grant comes back, he's just like, well, how was your vacation? <laughs> So he's had to live with him for the last 12 months. So he knows what it took a, you know, a couple of days for the people of uh, Bundan Yabba to work out. He's had to put up with, you know, what he already sees as, oh yeah, you're this big city guy. Yeah. Well, fuck you. Um, yeah. Did you have a nice holiday? <laughs> Let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play back a trio of interviews. The first is with director Ted Kotcheff. The second is with the editor, Anthony Buckley. And third is with actor Jack Thompson. And we'll be back with those after these brief messages. Andy, tell the listeners what we can expect from the Educating Brad podcast. Well, Dave, every other week we educate our good friend Brad by getting him to take a look at some of the most interesting films from the alternative side of cinema. Could you be more specific? Uh, well... How about the defining films of our age? So, uh, I can explain anything by Kozlowski, David Lean, Truffaut, Jack Tatty. Well, I've got it. Kubrick. You should be so lucky, Brad. Tell both our listeners, Andy. Well, it's cult horror mostly, but we'll be covering all sorts. 80s action, 90s favourites, extreme horror, exploitation, martial arts, and other strange ideas. Join us every other Tuesday for Educating Brad, an offbeat film podcast, available on iTunes, Android, and Stitcher Smart Radio. Hey folks, have you caught up with See Here podcast yet? Here are some of the pearls of wisdom that you can hear on a monthly basis. Here's Tim. How do you get people to take notice anymore, aside from shitting on the floor and rolling around in it, eating it and throwing it at people? How about Wendy? I was thinking about this as I was watching. I was thinking about that documentary about Levon Helm. Man, drummers are some crotchety-ass people. <laughs> what does Sticky have to say? Anyway, there was some guy in there, and he was kind of peeking into the window, trying to see what this record that was hanging up in the window was. As I was getting closer and closer to him, I realised it was Robert Plant, and he said, uh, oh, I, I just wanted to check this uh, record out in the window. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, you'll have to come back later when I open it. <laughs> and I'm rather boring. It sort of became a story about a man trying to promote the music that he loves against the backdrop of other people shooting the asses off of each other. You can get the See Here podcast at seehere.podbean.com. That's S-W-E-H-E-A-R. Or you can find it on iTunes. We discuss music-related films. Pardon the interruption. I have some news which I believe you will find most interesting. Would you like to hear the latest in Marvel television film, video games, and comic books? Or are you looking for some ideas on what to pick up on New Comic Book Day? Well, join Mike and Eric on Mighty Marvel Geeks every Saturday night on Sorcerer Radio and every Sunday on the Weeby Geeks Network for all things Marvel. There is a matter that requires your attention. Mighty Marvel Geeks. Assemble. All wrapped up here, sir. Will there be anything else? This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resent at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. How did you get into the directing game? What kind of got you involved in the industry? 
1952, I went to work for the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, before it even, the television service, before it even went on the air. And there was only about 50 of us who stood there. And of course, within a year, it was 2,000 people. And of course, the original 50, all kind of like uh, boiling a ham, the, the scum rises to the top, right? So, <laughs> and we, the original 50, all got a chance. And uh, there was a wonderful mentor, man, a guy in charge of the diamond department called Sidney Newman. And I was working as a story editor for him. And one day he came to my office and he said, you know, Ted, you're a pretty good writer. Not a great writer, but you're, you're a pretty good one. But you know what you would be really great at? I said, no, what would I be great at? I looked, looked at him. He said, you, you got all the makings to make a fine director. Would you like to, do, would you like to try? And I said, I said, yeah, okay. He said, here's the deal. I'll let you direct one. If I like it, you'll get a year's contract. If I don't like it, you're out in the street. You can't come back to this job. He said, but if you don't want to risk it, you're doing a fine job as a story editor. You can stay here. I said, no, no, I'll risk it. Well, obviously, I did it. I risked it. I did it. And I got a year's year's contract. So that was the days of live television drama, Mike. That's ancient history. There's only a few of us left who did that. After two years, I decided that um, I wanted to be to work and make and to become a film director. Now, Canada didn't have any film industry whatsoever at that time, so the choice was either to come to Los Angeles or to go to London. And I thought of working in the theater as well. And then London was wonderful. I think you could work in London, which I did. I worked in the theater as well as films there, and that's where I started my film career in London. And it was a result, a result of a producer seeing a funny play that I did in the theater. Was that where you did Tierra Tahiti? Exactly. Tierra Tahiti with John Mills and James Mason. That was, that was the film. Imagine your first, direct, first time directing Mike Ennis in Tahiti. <laughs> the whole film was shot in Tahiti. And James Mason is one of your first people that you get to direct? That's crazy. Oh, I loved him. And we, were, we did another film together later on. For te- that was for television. So how does a nice Canadian boy like you end up in Australia in the outback shooting something like Wake and Fright? Well, in 1969, I was living in London, and uh, a good friend of mine, screenwriter Evan Jones, came to me and he said, Ted, I've been hired to write a screenplay of an Australian book called Wake and Fright by Kenneth Cook. Evan handed me the book and he said, you know, read it. This is right up your alley. It's a lost weekend of self-discovery in outback hell. Evan and I had made a film together in 1968 entitled Two Gentlemen Sharing, which was about the racial situation in London in the 60s. It was at the Venice Film Festival. Working together on Two Gentlemen Sharing, we became fast and lasting friends. He knew me very well. And he was right about Wake and Fright, the book. I responded to its theme, its central character, its intense atmosphere very, very strongly. And the reason I I liked it, one thing, Mike, is that one common element that haunts my films is people who don't know themselves. The schoolteacher in Wake and Fright has no idea who he is or what he's capable of until he is put under extreme circumstances. Now, I think there's a deep drive in all of us to self-knowledge. Almost unconsciously, we put ourselves in situations where we can encounter ourselves. You know, remember Socrates said, know thyself? (laughs) But the thing about this this picture is, is the story of a kind of a sensitive, educated man who succumbs to the shadow side of his nature. It's an odyssey of self discovery. He finds that education, civilization are a thin defense against the yahoo in each one of us, and that we're all capable of the morally wrong. But, like you said, I was, at first, obviously, I was a bit trepidatious at first about making a film about a world I knew so little about. However, being a Canadian, when I arrived in Australia, I discovered that the outback was not that dissimilar to northern Canada. The same vast, empty spaces that, paradoxically, are not liberating, but claustrophobic and imprisoning. 
there was identical hyper-masculine societies, men who were molded by in, inhospitable circumstances. I used to describe Canada as Australia on the rocks. So that's how this Canadian ended up in Australia. Had you spent a lot of time in the, the great Northwest? Yeah, I have, I've been up there. I used to go up there a lot. I used to go canoeing up in distant lakes. Get, we used to get seaplanes to take us up and land us in, in the, uh, the lakes that had no road. You couldn't get no roads. The only way in was by getting a seaplane. And you'd make, you'd make a, an arrangement for him to come back in a week <laughs> and pick you up again. <laughs> so I knew, the, I knew the, yes, I knew the northern Canada very well. Now, you had been to Tahiti. Had you ever been to Australia before? No, I hadn't. No. Did you do all of your casting when you were still in London and then came over with the actors? The only two parts that I cast in London were obviously the teacher. He was English. And, of course, my friend Donald Pleasance. Uh, I knew Donald very well. I, I worked with him again before. I did a television play where he played the president of the United States and a Truman-esque president. <laughs> and but he was, and I'd, of course, I'd seen Donald many times in the Harold Pinter plays, The Caretaker, and other things. He's just a superb actor. The uh, Gary Bond, who played the teacher, I offered it to a couple of people who kind of passed on it for whatever reason. One of them kicked his ass forever, said, when he saw the film, saying he was sorry that he hadn't done it. But anyway, then I was in the theater. I saw that musical, Evita, and Gary Bond was starring in it. I said, oh, wow, that guy's perfect, perfect for the teacher. So I went backstage and said to, to Gary, would you read for, read for me, read the part? And he read it. He loved it. And that's how he came to be in it. But all the rest of the actors were, of course, I cast in uh, in Australia. Everybody else the cast. Oh, I had the woman who played the... Um, the uh, the wife of the guy, uh, what I forget what the character's name was, but she was my wife, Sylvia Kay. That's kind of an awkward role to put your wife in at the time. <laughs> yes, I know. And you know, the Australians are so we're so puritanical. There's a scene where she's naked, and Donald Pleasance, she's lying flat, and Donald Pleasance has got wine or liquor in his mouth, and he pours it into her mouth, and they're both naked. They were scandalized. The Australians, they thought, they one of them said to me, "Ted, how could you let your wife appear like that?" <laughs> Chips Rafferty, of course, I knew of him because he was a, he was he's the only kind of film star in Australia. They used in the in the forties and fifties. They used to the J. Arthur Rank in England uh, used to make uh, Australian westerns, and Chips Rafferty was one of the was one of the stars of those kind of westerns. It's such a great name. I know. I'll tell you a funny story about him, Chips Rafferty. You know, there's a lot of drinking of beer goes on, and so I, I had this prop man bring a lot of non-alcoholic beer. Because take after take, they're drinking. And uh, so the first first day, Chip Rafferty's on the job, and there's a scene where he has to drink drink two pints of beer on one take. So game not angry. <laughs> Spit it out. Ted, this is non-alcoholic beer. I said, yeah. He says, I can't act with fake beer. I want real beer. And I said, Chips, be reasonable. In this one take, you're drinking two pints of beer. If I go four or five takes, that's eight or ten pints of beer. He said, Ted, you do the directing, I'll do the drinking. <laughs> and, he, and, all, and I got to tell you, never, ever, and, and he drank incredible quantities of beer. Never, he ever slurred a word and never the slightest whisper of inebriation. Of course, they drink beer there all the time. I mean, they drink huge quantities of beer. You know, the, something like, I think I saw in an Australian newspaper at the time, that for every man, woman, and child in Australia, each day they consume eight pints of beer. I'm sure the men and women kind of uh, 
you know, are a little higher on the scale and the children are lower. At least I hope that's the case. <laughs> yes. Somebody has to be drinking 20 pints of beer to make up for all the children. If you don't mind me asking, who were the guys that you had offered that role to that uh, ended up kicking themselves? Oh, dear, Mike. I'm, I was trying to remember their names and I couldn't. I, want, I wanted to say to tell you, but one, one of them was not so well known, but, but the other one was fairly well known at the time as a, as a leading kind of young British actor. But I can't think of I apologize. I can't think of his remember's name. No problem. Here I thought you were being coy. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but he was the one he, he saw the film and for years afterwards he'd write to me and say, Ted, till a dying day, I'm gonna kick my ass that I didn't do that amazing part that you that you uh, created. Just to clarify, was Gary Bond playing the Che role or the uh, Juan Peron role in Evita? He was playing what? He was playing uh, the lead part. But who's the lead part? It wasn't, it wasn't Juan Peron, was it? I guess it was Che Guevara I would be more the lead. Yeah, he played Because I don't see him playing Evita herself. Yes. What was he like to work with? Oh, he was lovely. He was a lovely man. Um, never had any problems with him. He he was a, he took direction extremely well. There was no temperament. There was never there was never one nasty or unpleasant moment or an angry moment. And he got along great with all the other actors. Same with same with uh, of course with uh, with Donald Pleasance. I had it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you about Donald Pleasance. The uh, he was um, that he was you know, he's a, an amazing actor. There's a scene in the picture towards the end where he gets violently drunk and smashes up that that pub that he's in front of with his two friends. And he said, Ted, I don't think I can do this sober. He said, you know, it, you, I, I, you need to be incredibly full of madness when you do that part. I don't think I can get there without drink. So I said, oh, come on, Donald, you're one of the best actors in the English-speaking world. You can do it. Of course you can do it. He says, okay, I'll do my best. And we, and we shot the scene. He smashed up the whole pub. I saw the dailies the next day, and I went back to him and said, uh, Donald, we're going to do that scene again. Drink all the whiskey you want. <laughs> he said, I told you. I told you, Ted. You, was, in the eyes, you never got that insanity, did you? I said, you're right. I didn't. Go ahead. And he got drunk, and we did, we did that. The only thing we did that scene drunk. The only scene in the whole picture I did drunk after all that drinking. So this is the early 70s when you're shooting this there. And the film industry in Australia was still relatively in its nascent stages. I know they had done some work there before, but really wasn't the industry that we know it today. What was that like for you coming from the British film market where you're you know, widely supported, have been there? You know, British film has this long history going to Australia. What was that like to make that transition to filmmaking there? The great thing about them there, yes, they were not – they were – it's funny. When, we, when I cast them, I did bring over a British cameraman and, and the crew. And everybody in the crew moved down one rank. So an Australian cameraman became a, a, an Australian operator. An Australian operator became an Australian focus puller. They all dropped down one, one, one category because they deferred the fact that they weren't as experienced or knowledgeable, obviously. And, but they were so enthusiastic, Mike. I loved them. And there was no kind of uh, union rules, you know. If you wanted to move a light, a prop man would rush over and help the electrician move the light. If a prop table had to be moved, the electrician would help the prop man move the table. There was no, they, they got everything done as quickly as possible. And they were so enthusiastic, and they worked their asses off. You know, I, 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 I love that crew. I really did. They did a, an amazing job. 
because what they lacked in experience, they more than made up with their enthusiasm and excitement. Were there many long days of shooting for you? When I'm shooting, I'm afraid I, I do take a lot of time. I, I never compromise on a shot I get, until I get what I want. And I will go on several t- takes more than uh, most people, I guess, till I get exactly what I want. A, a film, as you know, is, is, a series of, is, a serious, is a series of connected pictures, and they have to all work. So that yes, they. Uh, but we never, I never had any again any problems with uh, the, the schedule. Now I know you had shot your first film in Tahiti. You had shot a lot of stuff in England. When you're coming over to Australia, from what I understand, it's really a very different color palette as far as the way that the Earth looks, the way that you know, the, just the sky and everything. And I really picked up on a lot of like kind of this greenish yellowish tint, especially when we start off the film and when he goes back to the town where he's teaching at. Was that kind of your experience of Australia as far as what that look was? Yes, the colors there are totally unrealistic. The earth is red. The foliage is blue. The bark on the tree is gray. It's, it's like an, it's like another planet. The colors, the vegetation, and it's absolutely mind-boggling. I, I loved it, of course. And one of the things that I did very on this film, which I'm very proud of, and is you know, film is get, you've got to get the details all right, all right. And so I said to my uh, set designer and my costume designer, I said, look. I want only hot colors in the sets and the wardrobe. It's got to be red, yellow, burnt sienna, orange. I don't want any cool colors. No blues, no greens in the sets or the wardrobe. But also, not only about that, but uh, as you know, out there, there's one thing that used to drive me crazy out there is the flies. The crew gave me a hat and had short strings with corks at the end of them so that there's the corks were always swinging around around my in my face especially in, so that it doesn't get in my eyes but in spite of that i would swallow mike i swallowed about 10 flies a day i would say action and a fly would go in my mouth as i opened it up <laughs> So what I did was, and so when I came came around to, to shooting the interiors, I got hundreds of sanitized flies from the University of Sydney. And between before each take, I would release twenty flies into the set. If you notice, when you look at the picture, you'll see flies, like in, especially in in the Donald Pleasance's house. And also, I the red the red dust, the red dirt. I had a barrel of red dust, and I had a I had one of those pumping things, you know, where you pump before each take. I would pump. Red dust, in the, so that the red dust, and you really notice at the beginning of the film, this red dust hanging in the air, and also it would settle on everything. It settled on the table, on the books, on the chairs. And so the, I think that all added up. As somebody, one of my friends said, Ted, I saw your film immediately afterwards, I had a shower. They were still want you to be uncomfortable because that was the way these people live in the most inhospitable circumstances in the world, Mike. I mean, it's incredible, these guys. Uh, they, how you live out there, I don't know. There's so much of the film that kind of speaks to this whole idea of like secret societies, you know, those who are in the know, while Grant, John Grant, the Gary Bond character, is just not. Would you say that he's not even a member of the Society of Men, the Club of Men at the beginning of the film? Oh, yes, it is. And it's not that they're in clubs. And I'll give you an example. It's it's what I call mateship mates. Uh, I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of how it applied to me. I do you know that there's there's a location in the picture of a pub in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by fifty miles of desert, with a big beer bottle on top of it. So we were looking for a pub in the middle of nowhere, and I saw this thing. This I said, Oh, look at that! 
over there, let's get over there. And so we just, you know, of course, you just get off the road and you drive over the desert. Boom, bitty, bump, bitty, bump, bitty, bump, bitty, bump, bitty. And we, we arrived at this thing. And it was a Sunday. And there were 50 cars around the pub. Each one had a woman with a beehive hairdo in it because women are not allowed into the pubs. Do you believe this shit? It's 110 in the shade, no shade. And they're sitting in the car and they're not allowed to go. And meanwhile, from inside, you hear all the raucous laughter of the men. And they're all miners and sheep ranchers. So I said, wow, this looks, let's go inside and see if we can shoot the interior as well. I got to tell you one thing about me when I was there. I had a handlebar mustache hanging down like this. And I had my hair down to my elbow. I looked like a 60s hippie, right? So John Shaw said, look, Ted, they're not really nice to outsiders around here, especially outsiders who look like you. And I said, what? You think they're going to hit charming Ted Kotcheff? Come on, they're going to hit me. I'm going in. We're not going to wait. Because he said, wait, wait, wait. Let's go come back tomorrow when they're down the mines and on their sheep ranches. I said, look, we're here now. It's 50-mile drive. Come on, I'm going to go inside. They're not going to hit me. So I, with bravado, I get out. John says, okay, it's your funeral. And I took three steps, and I thought to myself, John Shaw's built like a brick shithouse. He was a rugger player. Oh, my God, what am I? I must be crazy. Anyway, I go inside. And it's like a scene out of a John Ford Western night. There's about 50 pairs of guys drunk and 50 guys in there. And as I walked in, they all stopped talking and laughing. And 50 pairs of drunken eyes look at me. Of course, I just well, so I walk over to the to the bar and say, uh, I'll have a schooner of ale, please. I was already I already knew the lingo. I'll schooner of ale. And the schooner of ale. Okay. And they, went, they all went back to drinking and laughing and talking. And there was a guy five feet from me. And he looked at my long hair and he leaned close to my looking at my long hair and said, shit. Then he kind of leaned over and looked at my mustache. Shit. And then finally he said, hello, Stalin. I guess there was a faint resemblance to Stalin because of my mustache or something because of dark Slavic looks. And I didn't say anything. I just raised my glass and smiled. He said in a very loud voice, which quietened the whole room down. I said, Hello, Stalin, inviting the reply. Who the hell are you calling Stalin? Beth! He stuck his jaw right into my face. I thought if I'd swung my right, I would have broken his jaw. I said, look, I'd love to talk to you, but I'm dead. And he, he, there was a pause. He didn't get it for two seconds. Then they got it. He started to laugh. And the whole room started to laugh. And this drunk guy said, I, he says, I love a bloke with a sense of humor. Bartender, give this man a schooner of ale. Anyway, they became, uh, I sat there all afternoon. I left John Shaw to boil in the car. No guts, no glory. And <laughs> and I became friends with this guy, this drunken guy, and four other guys. And we drank all afternoon. And within an hour, I was eight pints behind. I'd buy, they'd buy. I'd buy, they'd buy. But if they drank so fast, I couldn't get it down me that fast. And they became my mates. Mateship, that means you support, you support each other, you protect each other. And anyway, getting back to my lack of knowledge about the culture, and I obviously was going out every night after we came back from looking for locations. I'd go into bars and pubs and the RCL clubs, return servicemen's clubs. And anyway, I was in a pub, and, and a guy came up and says, come on, let's fight. <laughs> And I said, look, mate, I got no quarrel with you. I'm not looking to have a fight with you. Oh, yes, come on, let's fight. And suddenly a voice came out of the crowd saying, Alan, you leave Ted alone. He's my mate. And the guy looked over. He said, oh, sorry. Sorry, Joe. Sorry, 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 sorry. Oh, Ted, come on. I'll buy you a, beer. I'll buy you a pint of ale. <laughs> 
And that, and don't ask me how, but wherever I went every night, one of those four guys from one of the, the five guys from the Stalin, I called the Stalin pub. They, they were there protecting me. Oh, wow. that, and that was the culture, that kind of intense closeness between men, mateship, where, where they really look after you, each other. You need it out there. You just needed it. You must have felt like the John Grant character for a little bit. There. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but anyway, um, that, that's but you know one interesting thing was uh, when I when I um, first went there. You know, do you know if you ever direct a film in a place that you know nothing about, Mike? I, do you know what this one of the first things you should do? Take the editor of the local newspaper out to dinner because they know everything about the town. Broken in his case, it was Broken Hill. They know where all the bodies are buried. They know everything about it. He said to me, um, Ted, you do know that in Broken Hill, the men outnumber the women three to one. And I said, really? Where are the bordellos? He said, there are no bordellos in this town. Well, I said, well, what, what, what do they have, homosexual relationships? I said, are you kidding? Absolutely not. We don't have gays here. So I said, well, what do the men in the town do for human contact? He said, well, they fight, of course. <laughs> but I understood. I put it in the film. There's When they fight each other. When they come to fight me, I just I grew up in the I grew up in the streets of, of Canada. And the, how do you win a street fight? You hit first. Now guys would come up to me like the, that other two guys say, "Come on, let's fight." And they'd stick their jaws right out, out at me. I mean, I just had to swing like this with my right. I would break their jaw. And what I understood was they didn't want to hit me. They wanted me to hit them. It was human contact and warmth. And I tried to get that kind of homoerotic quality in, in the film. And that remember the fight where they're all rolling around at the end after, oh, the, yeah. after they smash up the pub, I try to suggest that, that that's, that's there. And of course there isn't, the, there is uh, the whole thing with, with Donald Pleasance and, uh, and the teacher. Tell me about that. Lest we forget ceremony that happens in the pub for an American and somebody that grew up, you know, well after world war two, it just seems so completely foreign to me. Had you seen something like that before? No, I hadn't. And then the reason I knew was one of, one of the areas, of course, one of the most important clubs in that town, and practically every town and city of Australia, are the RSL clubs, Returned Servicemen's League clubs. And they're all veterans. That one, that one there, there were, most of the guys in that RSL club, and I went there, practically the whole town had been in World War II. And they were all at Gallipoli, and they got massacred at Gallipoli. They were intense veterans, and they really felt it. When, when the, Every night, every night in that RSL club, the lights would go down. And I remember the guy that was taking me, they said, get up, get up, get up, get up. And I stood up, and then it started. That had that, had that picture of a sailor, a soldier, and an airman, the three profiles. And then he said, uh, in the going down of the sun, we shall remember them and all that. You know, that was saying, lest we forget, yeah. So they, they did it every night, Mike, in that RSL club. They were intensely involved with their veterans in a way that I've never seen any other country. Um, although America certainly honors its veterans as well. But they are really uh, devoted to remembering the people who died in this, as a result of their service in the Australian uh, Armed Services. The film has such an interesting pacing to it. You know, so much of the beginning we're at that bar and John's kind of learning the lay of the land and learning that whole two up game. And then the second half really takes him into this whole other world with the Donald Pleasance character and everything. One of the scenes that stands out the most with that second half of the film is the kangaroo hunt. What was that experience like for you shooting that? 
this was to me one of my most the biggest problems in my film. Um, I don't even eat meat. I would never kill an animal for a film. That would be unthinkable to do that. And so I didn't. I thought to myself, how the hell am I going to do this, Mike? How am I going to do it? Because it was, uh, you're right, it's the climax of the film, because that's where he becomes degraded and becomes part of them, doesn't he? He does the same kind of inhuman things that the rest of them are doing drunk, in drunken fashion. I was I worried and worried. I didn't know what to do, how I was going to shoot it. And, of course, we didn't have CGI then, computer-generated images, so you could, maybe you could fake it somehow. A member of the crew came to me, and he said, do you know, Ted, they kill hundreds of kangaroos. They shoot hundreds of kangaroos every night in the outback. And I said, oh, why? He said, oh, it's a big, it's a big business. He said, they, 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 they pelts. They're very soft. And you know all those cuddly toys you give your children at Christmas? Well, those koala bears, they're kangaroos, pelts. But more importantly, the meat is sold to the American pet food industry. And I said, you mean American cats and dogs eat kangaroo meat? He said, that's right. So he says, why don't you go and see if you can maybe go out with some of the hunters? So indeed, I found out where, uh, and what it is, so there was a huge, huge uh, transport truck, about 50 feet long. That was a refrigeration truck. And they had six pairs of hunters going out in trucks, steak trucks, and they go off in different directions, north, south, east, west. And they would come upon, and um, say, a herd of kangaroos. They used the spotlight, like in the film, the spotlight which paralyzes the, the kangaroo or the animal. They had, they had a retractable wind, windshield, and then their guns would rest on the dashboard. They never even got out of the car. And they'd turn the, they'd, turn the, they'd turn the light on the animal. It would freeze, and they'd kill them. And they would kill about 18. When they, they would cut off their heads. Remember, there's a shot in the picture of, of kangaroo heads. They'd cut the pelt off the animal, and they would take it back, and they'd put the, the pelts on one side, and they'd put the, the kangaroo corpse in a refrigeration truck to be brought to the port and shipped off to America. I asked these guys, I said, is it all right if I, I take my camera and sit on the back of the truck behind the, the spotlight and photograph? And then they said, sure. And, uh, and then, then one of the kangaroo hunters said to me, uh, Ted, where do you want us to shoot him? Huh? Well, what, what do you mean? Well, we can shoot him in the kidneys, the heart, or the brain. And I said, well, what's the difference? He said, well, if you shoot him in the kidneys, they drop dead immediately. If you shoot him in the brain, they take one enormous leap in the air, and then they fall down dead. You shoot him in the brain, in the heart, rather, they take three great hops, and they drop dead. I said, I was horrified, of course. I said, please, please. I said, look, you do nothing for me. You, you get about your business. Don't, don't you do anything for me. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Just, I'll just get on with your job. And then the guy said, and one time, one, 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 one. But you know, you know, uh, Mike, um, I obviously had a lot of kangaroos. Sometimes they're all around me. And they're the most anthropomorphic creatures I've ever encountered. They look like human beings with an animal head on top of it. It's like bottom from Midsummer Night's Dream. And I always thought, there's a guy in there who's going to lift off his kangaroo head and say, hey, Ted, it's, I'm all, it's only me, bottom. And he put the kangaroo head back on again because they were incredible. And one of the hunters told to me, he said, you know, Ted, he said, no hunter ever looks into the eyes of a kangaroo. Because if you look into the eyes of a kangaroo, you can never kill one again. They're so human looking. So anyway, that's how I got that kangaroo. And, you know, you know like, as bad as some of the footage was in the film, and I always, I always caution ideas that no, no animal was hurt in this film. I had always had a representative on the set to give me their seal of approval from the Royal Australian Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. He was always on the set. 
there was some footage that I shot in life which was so horrific that there was no way I could use it. Especially when at two o'clock in the morning, they started to miss these guys who were deadly accurately. With, and I leaned over and I looked in from the back of the truck. I leaned over and looked into the cabin. There was a half bottle of whiskey had been consumed. Well, you should have seen it. Blood, I don't want to go into it. Blood was fountaining out of their nostrils. And it was just horrendous. And the, the RSPC, the Royal, the Royal Australian Cruelty Animals guy said to me, Ted, you've got to put that in the film. I said, there's no way I said I'm putting this in the film. The audience will run screaming out of the cinema. He said, no, but he says, the people in the city, in Sydney and Melbourne, and they don't know anything what's going on out here. I said, I don't care, but I'm, I, for my film, I can't have the audience so, so horrified that the picture will grind to a halt. Narr- narrative. <laughs> so anyway, but at the end of the shooting, I gave him my film that I didn't use. And about 15 years ago, he phoned me up and he said, Ted, I have some great news. I screened that film that you gave me for the government and they have just passed a law banning the killing of kangaroos for, for the American pet food industry. You know, but you, you asked me about the Australians. The other thing is Australians, you said that they think of them as, as um, a vermin uh, or something else. What they do is they always call them bastards. Kill them, goddamn bastards. Bastards. Because the farmers all dislike them because, of course, they drink a lot of water and they eat a lot of grass, which they'd rather be, be eaten and drank by, the, by their sheep. By all the sheep ranchers is the one that really hate them because of that, because they compete with, uh, with their sheep for the uh, grass and the water. And they, and they were the ones who always called them bastards. I think it's, all those bastards should be shot. The end of the hunt, when they're actually kind of wrestling with the kangaroos, what was that like to shoot? How intense was that? And I don't imagine that those were stuntmen inside of kangaroo suits. No, 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 they weren't. Well, very interesting enough. That's another another uh, sequence that I, that worried me terribly. How am I going to shoot that? Where the guy, one of the, one of the kangaroo hunters, decides he's not going to shoot. He's going to fight him with a knife and grab him. Remember? And he grabs him and slits his throat. How am I going to do that? I, I uh, because you know um, the first of all the um, all the kangaroos kangaroos are not violent, and if they feel threatened to the point someone might kill them, they're like, they become like Gandhi-type non-violence humans, and they just lie down. They will not fight, so they don't get killed. And I used to have them lying all around me. And I said, oh my God, this is my worst nightmare. Because every time he came around with that knife, they didn't fight, they laid down. I said to my AD, I said, I had, I had professors from University of Sydney, uh, by, by guys who are new animals and everything else. I said, just send them all home. <laughs> they couldn't help me. And then I called over the, the, the kangaroo wrangler. I said, let all these, these other kangaroos go. We had erected a big rectangle with a high fence to keep them in and covered it with material, same color as the earth. You couldn't see them by day, let alone by night. You couldn't see it. It was about, it was about the size of a playing field, a football playing field. And I said, I said, let them go and go bring me back eight fresh kangaroos. Well, you know, Mike, when you do a film, you always need a bit of luck. And his, the luck was as follows. They came back with eight fresh kangaroos. One of them was about eight feet high and only had one eye. His other eye had been shot out by some hunter. He hated human beings. He was the Moby Dick of kangaroos. He wanted to kill every human being he ever met. 
And so he stood there. And when Peter, the actor, I know how he did it. He came at him. This this kangaroo just went for Peter. And because what, what they try to do is they want to embrace you with their with their arms. Then they rate the, then they have a prehensile tail. They put the tail on the ground and they fall back on their tail and they raise their legs inside the embrace and smash every bone in your body with a kick because they're those jumping legs. They go forty miles an hour. They're incredibly powerful. And he went for Peter. And Peter, I don't know how he kept his cool in the face of the onslaught. This guy and take after take. I called him. Um, I called him because of his one eye. I called him Lord Nelson. <laughs> I said, and uh, take after take, he went for a bit. And, and, and I had I had three days in the schedule for this fight. We did it in three hours. I had I had four cameras turning all the time, and I and finally after the the, the um, I, I called a home. I said, I said, camera one, camera two, you got? He says, well, we got incredible material. Each of them had incredible, we got a turtle. So I said, okay. And, and, uh, you should, there was a wonderful scene at the end between Peter Whittle and, and Captain, um, Lord Nelson. They were so exhausted by going, because, because uh, he, uh, what they did. Um, because Peter went around the back, lifted up, once you lift a kangaroo, by the tail off the ground, he's pretty well helpless because his prehensile tail that he can go back on. Is. After they finished the whole, we finished shooting, the two of them were so exhausted that Lord Nelson had his head on Peter Whittle's shoulder. <laughs> the two of them were resting on each other. And I said, okay, Lord Nelson, open the gates. You can go now. And he looked at me and everybody started applauding him. All the crew applauded Lord Nelson. And he took four exploratory steps. He looked back at me. He wasn't sure. I said, yeah, you can go. Go back to your family and your friends. You did a great job. Go. And he hopped off into the darkness. What an what I'm telling you, it was the most amazing experience of my life, that whole thing. This this eight foot, he he towered over me. He was two feet taller than me. He was huge. Lord Nelson. And at the credit it says Lord Nelson, the fighting kangaroo. And people think he was like a kangaroo that was that was um you know, fighting professionally. No, no, he wasn't. He was a totally wild kangaroo. Wake and Fright really goes hand in hand with a lot of other outback films like Walkabout or Peter Weir's The Cars That Ate Paris. What was it about Australia in the early seventies do you think that produced just so many interesting films? Well, first of all, I got to tell you, when most, I know a lot of Australia, I knew a lot of Australian directors. I knew Fred Skepsey. I knew Bruce Beresford. Peter Weir was an observer on my film. A young man came to me and said, do you mind, Mr. Kotcheff, if I, I could love you watch your work, I'm a would-be director. And I said, no, 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 okay. And then two or three years later, somebody said to me, one of the Australians, I think it was Jack Thompson, the actor, said to me, Ted, you know that guy who sat, <laughs> that young director would-be director who sat with you and watched you work? I said, yeah, that was Peter Weir. And then, like, Fred Skepsey, who I knew very well, he's terrific, and Bruce Beresford directed a script written by a friend of mine, Brian Moore, Black Robe. What happened was, they all wanted to work in Hollywood. They didn't want to work in Australia. They thought Australia was a, a non-filmic place, if you know what I mean. And then, when I made Wake and Fright, this sounds, I hope this doesn't sound too self-congratulatory, but when I made the film, uh, Fred Skepsey told me that. He said, you know, Ted, you do know you're responsible for the Australian film renaissance. <laughs> I said, what? 
said, yeah, Bruce Beresford, Fred Skepsi, Peter Weir. We all saw your film and said, oh, my God, you know, you can make great films here in Australia. And so he said, instead of thinking about going to Hollywood, we started to make films here. So that film by Fred Skepsi was made afterwards. The only film but Nick Rogue's film, Walkabout, that was done simultaneously as well. And that helped to – that was another film and mine, The Together – which inspired the Australian directors to think about making good films in their own country. Now, the, uh, Nick Rogue, show, uh, he was shooting at the same time as uh, I was. Which is funny, you Canadian, Britain, and then him, British citizen, coming over here, you know, coming over to Australia. That was, uh, yeah, that's interesting that it takes these two foreign presences to kind of kickstart it. Yes, but we saw something that, that they just took for granted. You know, they didn't realize how interesting the outback was and the people that were there, you know. But then suddenly they realized, because they, that was, nobody bothered working, making films out there. John Scott's score is just incredible. It's so eerie and just really pitch perfect. What was it like working with him on, on getting the, the score for Wake and Fright? Oh, he, he's a great composer. I had seen um, some of, he's, he's done a lot of films um, before, and I really liked him, him personally, and I liked his music. I'm a big, I was brought up, uh, Mike, as a musician. Uh, my, my parents started me on the violin when I was five years old. I won, I was a bit, I was precocious, although I won a gold medal when I was eight. Oh, pardon me, pardon me, boasting of it. And, uh, so, but I really like music, and I really care for music in films. Um, and I think they play a very, very important part in shaping the audience's sensibilities. And the music can say things that are not on the screen, but are implied underneath what's going on, underneath what's going on in the pictures on the screen. So music, I'm a, uh, as I say, music to me is, plays a very important part in the uh, in the filmmaking. But I, I liked him a lot. I liked it. And he was, um, then, then that was the beginning of a, a career the two of us had together. I used him on two other films. Later on, I used them in uh, Billy Two Hats, a Western I made with Gregory Peck. And I made a film about American football called North Dallas 40 with Nick Nolte. And he did, again, he did entirely different with the music for that. Oh, Mike, it's, the music is unbelievable. And again, it's, here is, here's his football player. It's all about people and football players. But he, it made you think about the inner life of Nick Nolte in a way that was not evident on the screen. It was the music is just extraordinary, and also I love the music in Wake and Fight too. I got to tell you, I think it's amazing. He used he used some Australian instruments, Jiggery Jew and Jiggery whatever they call it, and uh, I um, I think that it contributed a lot to the feeling of, as you say, the eerie music. Was Wake and Fright your first trip to Cannes? Yes, it was. But and I'll tell you, I'll tell you an, an amusing story. <laughs> I went to um, Cannes, it was in 1971, the Cannes Film Festival. And I was thrilled, of course, because, you know, that's the ultimate accolade for a film, artistic accolade a film can receive to being recognized and invited to participate in the Cannes Film Festival. There's no, there's no higher award. So I was really thrilled as, as a filmmaker to be uh, invited there. There was the, on, the, on the day of the short screening of the film, the director sits on the balcony the middle row of the first of the first row of seats, the middle seat in the first row of seats in in the first balcony, and uh, then the, the the jury comes in and the the director and the jury bow to each other and it starts. Now that balcony was reserved only for people in the business. It had to be writers or directors 
or producers of film. They're all had to be professional people. The picture started, and there was this voice, American voice, which surprised me because most of the people who were sitting there were, were uh, Germans or French or Italians. And uh, this American voice saying, wow, wow, what a scene. And of course, this is music to a director's ears, isn't it? I mean, after all, they're not interfering with my pleasure in the film. I've seen it 684 times. <laughs> and then he kept saying, I'm getting it. Oh, my God. This is this scene. It's great. Oh. And finally, there's the climax. I won't spoil it for the audience what the climax is, but it involves uh, my, my, uh, my lead, Gary Bond, and Donald Pleasance. And he said, oh, my God, this, is, this director is going to go all the way. He's, go, he's going all the way. Oh, my God. He went all the way. Oh, my God. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Anyway, the film finished. I got up and I looked over and I saw this 25-year-old kid with, with big horn-rimmed glasses. And, and I walked out. And I went over to the, to, to the, to the um, two United Artists publicity guys who were there, you know, doing publicity work for the film. I said, listen, there was this young American sitting behind me. Do you know who he was? He said, no. And I said, I wish I could know. And then at that moment, he came out of the cinema. I said, that's him, that guy right there. He said, oh, him. Ah, oh, yeah, he's a nobody. And I said, okay, but what's his name? He said, well, what do you care, Ted? He's not anybody. He, I think he directed one film. It was a flop. That's all. I said, I don't care. I want to know his name. And one guy says, do you know his name? He says, yeah, yeah. It's some strange Italianate name. Oh, yeah. Martin Scorsese. And I said, you're right. I don't, I don't know who he is. And I haven't seen his film. At any rate, Martin Scorsese turned out to be the biggest fan of this film. He, he was so generous and gave uh, his uh, all the publicity on our posters. We, had, we, we have a line that said, this film left me absolutely speechless, Martin Scorsese. He give, he give me great quotes. I mean, even 25 years later, when the film was shot, when it was showing about two, three years ago in a revival in New York, he gave me a brand new quote for it. And now, did you know that Wake and Fright is only one of two films that have been screened twice at the Cannes Film Festival? Yes, the other one was Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura. And you know, when I, the, 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 the second time, um, Wake and Fright was declared a Cannes Classic and screened again. Now, do you know who was the head of the Cannes Classic Department at the Cannes Film Festival? You guessed it, Martin Scorsese. He remembered the film after 25 years and made it declared a Cannes Classic. I mean, wow. I'll tell you, I had, I've never met him personally. Of course, I wrote to him endlessly, emails, letters and things. But finally, one day, there's always a, 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 at um, uh, the Academy... Like the, the Academy, uh, what is the, what's the thing? The festival? What's the statue called? The Oscar. The Oscar, that's right. Anyway, about <laughs> uh, at, at Academy, uh, at Oscar time, at the Academy, there's always having Oscar parties all the time. And there was a part, Oscar party at, uh, the, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. So I, I'm not very keen on going to them, but this one was a friend of mine, was a director friend of mine that had been nominated. So I went and I see Martin Scorsese sitting with Robert De Niro. And I rushed over and I said, Mr. Scorsese, Ted Kotcheff, we've never met personally. Ah, he said, Ted, I love your films. I love Wake and Fight. And, I, and then I told uh, De Niro the story about how he'd sat, sat behind me when he was 25 years old and kept saying, what a scene, what a scene. He looked at me and he said, Ted, he does that to everybody's film, but usually it's not so good. <laughs> but, you know, Martin Scorsese has an encyclopedic knowledge 
and an incredible memory, as, as displayed, obviously. Uh, for He's seen every film, and he knows them all. It's incredible, his knowledge. He's, he's a walking encyc- film encyclopedia. Other than Martin Scorsese, how was the reception for the film? When the film was released in Australia in 1971, in spite of a strong critical response, the popular reaction was lukewarm. I think people there were a bit affronted by the depiction of the Aussie male. Jack Thompson, one of the actors that played the, one of the kangaroo hunters, told me that at that one cinema where he was present, a man rose up, pointed to the screen and yelled out, this is not us. And another voice cried out, sit down, you fool. It is us. <laughs> of course, as I said, the film went to the Cannes Film Festival in 1971. And of course, the French loved it. Critics, audiences, they love the idea of men, this theme of men under existential stress, etc., etc. <laughs> and it played in Paris for nine months. But France was the only country where Wake and Fright succeeded. Here in America, under the title Outback, which I resisted, but you insisted, but United Artists insisted, the film got superb reviews from the likes of Pauline Kael, uh, Christopher Isherwood, and others. And Rex Reed chose it as one of the 10 best films of 1971. But United Artists, the distributors, didn't believe in the film at all. They said to me, no one in America is going to come and see this film. So they opened it without any publicity in a small cinema in New York on a Sunday night in a heavy blizzard. So as you can imagine, nobody came. And United Artists said to me, we told you nobody would come. You know, Mike, distributors are very good at self-fulfilling prophecies. Anyway, it was quickly yanked and shown nowhere else, and that was that. Um, the Group W Films, who had financed the film with an Australian partner, went into bankruptcy, and the film was swallowed up by creditors and, and disappeared for a long time. I won't go into the long story about how it was found again after 25 years, and they, they made a new print, print of it. And this time, of course, it was a clearly can classic. It was re-released in Sydney, and this time, of course, the Australians flocked to it. And it's been re-released in every country, in Great Britain, in France, in Italy, in Germany. It, recently, and uh, they re-released it in um, France uh, uh, last December. And that film, Mike, it's the most, of all my films, it's the most extraordinary film. It's always showing either in some city where they're reviving it or at some film festival. And right now, for, in, for example, it was at Perth Film Festival in Australia. And at the beginning of September on Labor Day weekend, it's showing at the Telluride Film Festival. It's always being screened somewhere. It's the most extraordinary film of all my films. I'd love it to be true. You asked me if it was true of any I'd love it to be all my other films were like that. The only other film that comes close to that, of course, is First Blood, uh, first Rambo film with Sylvester Stallone. That, that is always being, that's going to be shown. The AFI is screening that at the Egyptian Theater here in Los Angeles in, uh, so in October. But but this but this has had the most extraordinary post life. Yeah, I don't want to be indelicate, but when we talked on our um, first blood episode, one of the things that I noticed when I was going back through and listening to the audio commentary was that your name is strangely absent from the commentary. Like you are referred to quite often as the director, but not named by name. Was that just an oversight or was that an intentional slight? Michael, I don't know. I've never heard, I've never listened to that doctor, the, the voiceover on, on the, on, so I don't know. I didn't know until, until you told me, I didn't know that was the case. I don't know why. And if they did it, I don't know why they did it. 
because, of course, it was my film and et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, I, but of course, Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone has made, of course, a career out of it. Do you know he's doing another Rambo film? Yeah, I heard that. I couldn't believe it when I heard the news. He's going to go to uh, he's going to go to Syria and fight ISIS. <laughs> I think my brother my brother said, "I hope he's got his walker with him." <laughs> I love, listen, don't get me wrong, I'm sorry, I admit that. I love Sylvester, and I think, you know, he was, he contributed to, uh, we wrote the, the re, he, I wrote the script, and then he and I rewrote the script, and he made tremendous contributions to that script. I think that made it successful. Yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate him as a screenwriter, that he has done a tremendous job with a lot of the films that he's worked on, or, you know, script doctored, and I don't think people even realize the contributions he's made. He, what, he, what he has, Mike, he has an incredible sense for what a, what an audience would like to see and what they don't want to see. He's just he's just got this. It's amazing. He called it dead right every time in my film and in two or three crucial ways. Second year, and um, I started work when I was 15 years of age, and uh, I know nothing, Mike, other than film. Uh, it's quite weird. I've never had to use, uh, work as a waiter. I've never had to drive a taxi. Somehow or other, I've always been employed or employable. Uh, or then, of course, I became the employer. Were you a big film fan growing up? Yes. Uh, every Saturday afternoon, I would be at the pictures. Uh, as we call them. I remember looking at, strangely, an Australian film that had been made in the 30s. And Saturday matinees here yeah, consisted of two two generally B features and then a serial and then cartoons and goodness knows what. Uh, you The sessions used to start at 1 o'clock and you'd be out by 5.15. And I remember seeing the title Film Editor at the top of the screen and I thought that would be an interesting job. Never uh, realising that as I approached my teens that I would finish up starting work in a film laboratory and going into an editing department two years later. And the sort of rest is history. So, yes, no, I, I, I knew nothing about the history of cinema when I was going to the pictures. I used to collect everything. Hence, I have 78 archive boxes in the National Film and Sound Archive here of magazines that were that have long been out of print, uh, and they're very grateful for the collection. So I've kept everything uh, from day one, so to speak. So why editor? Why did that interest you more than acting, directing, anything else that was uh, available in the as a filmmaker? As a boy, I was I had a, a, a passe baby camera. And I used to shoot a gauge, which I don't think has ever reached America, uh, um, 9.5 millimeter. It's a French home movie gauge. And I used to um, enjoy chopping pieces out of the film and sticking them back together again and then running them through the Pathé projector. Certainly when, when I started professional work being paid, 
as an assistant. It became apparent to me that I wasn't going to be a director. I, I felt as though I couldn't direct my way out of a brown paper bag uh, and still couldn't. Um, and I thought the editing process it attracted my attention. As, and, I, and I had started reading by then the film magazines and um, technical articles. And uh, I thought, no, editing's the go. And I also think, uh, in hindsight, and I teach still occasionally, that editors make good producers because they start at the beginning of the film and they're there when the print is delivered to the projection box, well, as it used to be. I quite approve of, of DCP projection because no longer are the films out of rack, out of focus, or scratched. You did do some directing. Can you tell me about Forgotten Cinema, the golden age of Australian motion pictures? Well, it's, it was the first film ever made on the history of our cinema, um, and I became interested because I think I talk about in my book that um, nobody knew. In fact, the film for many years was subtitled by, by people as I didn't know that. They felt that as they sat through the hour of Forgotten Cinema, that they didn't know that, and they were taken by surprise. I suppose you can call it directing, um, but <clears throat> documentary is a different medium and probably the hardest medium of all, I think. That's why I admire documentarists even to this day, what they managed to achieve. But I've never directed actors, and I, never, I, I wouldn't even attempt to. I've always said since becoming a producer in the 1970s that um, the director's prerogative is the cast of the actors and the producer's prerogative is crewing the picture to make sure that around the director are the best people that you can possibly find. One of your first gigs as an editor was working with Michael Powell on Age of Consent. What was that like? Michael Powell's an interesting filmmaker and as a result of working on that picture, uh, we had a lifelong friendship in correspondence and visits when I went to England and so forth. He referred to me as SYM, Sensitive Young Man, and he saw Forgotten Cinema, and uh, I can remember that vividly, and he said, I'll talk to you over the weekend. And he rang on the Sunday night and said, I would like you to cut my picture. And, of course, Forgotten Cinema was a, a, a documentary made on no money. And I'd hardly call it um, direction or editing, but, however, the picture did come together. And that seemed to ring a chord with Michael. Um, I still see his son, uh, Kevin Powell, lives out here in Australia, uh, down on the south coast of New South Wales. And I've been trying to persuade Kevin to write a biography of his father because although Michael's first volume is, is exceptional, but Kevin has anecdotes and stories to tell about working on pictures as a boy on the set with his father that uh, no biographer has ever had access to. But um, he's he was a rarity, really, amongst British film directors and probably all film directors. And it's interesting that Martin Scorsese has sort of taken an interest and, and, and a valuable contribution to the restoration of Michael's films. So a few years after that, you're working on Wake and Fright. What was that experience like for you, and how did you get involved with the project? <laughs> One has to be careful of the laws of defamation and libel. <laughs> 
Um, how did I get involved? I had the highest, highest regard for Ted Kotcheff, um, but as indicated in the chapters that I've written about Wake and Fright, sometimes I could have strangled him. Wake and Fright was a challenge all round because there are some things in our culture that are still denied by urban people, and yet I could take you out if you arrived in Sydney tomorrow morning, we'd take another plane and go to Broken Hill. I could take you on a kangaroo hunt tonight. And this is 2015. Nothing's changed. However, I think Wake and Fright was probably a good 10 to 15 years ahead of its time, which made it difficult for critics to accept it uh, here in Australia at the time, although the British critics liked it. Um, but the French um, are the ones that have been our staunchest supporters, um, as they call it in France, version originale. Um, the original version of Wake and Fright played at a cinema on the Boulevard Saint-Michel for 10 months in 1971, um, which was quite a record for what in for the French it would be a foreign film. Um, um, an, an English soundtrack with a, a, a strange accent. Um, the film was a challenge. I think it was my best work as an editor. I continued editing for quite some time after that. But I think the chemistry between Mr. Kotcheff and myself worked to the benefit of the film and probably the benefit of my career by a long way. Now, I know that the film was kind of controversial, especially amongst Australians, as far as this whole idea of a Canadian coming in, shooting this picture, which is kind of critical of what's going on, or at least shows what goes on in the outback. As an Australian, what did you think about that? Well, I thought that was the secret of of its success. Uh, I had worked in Canada uh, for two years on a Canadian uh, miniseries or a, a, a continuing series. In fact, I think it was Canada's first. And I got a job in the editing department in Canada because I'd handled 35mm film and the Canadians hadn't at that time. And likewise, I got a job in England because I'd handled 16mm film. Uh, but I think the fact that you've got an Australian novel, a Canadian director, a Jamaican-born writer who still has never been to Australia, I think that contributed to it. Also, I said that by working in Canada, Ted Cotter had an, a, a, a feel for the country because in, in reality, there's not a lot of difference between Canada and Australia. The difference is there and north of your border, it's cold and here it's hot. And there it's ice and snow and here it's desert and heat. But the circumstances of working uh, and living in the outback, there's no different to living in Hudson's Bay or the Yukon, if you think about it. What was your working relationship like with Ted Kotcheff on this one? Quite different from Michael Powell, which was four years before that. Michael never came into the cutting room. He never, ever came into the cutting room except to say good morning or good night. He always saw his cuts on the screen. And that was very interesting for me, that he trusted his editor uh, to that degree. Ted was forever in the cutting room. I couldn't get rid of him. 
But that you get used to. That's a different method of working. He wasn't telling me what to do. He was just passing the time of day and watching with interest to what was happening to his footage. And he'd leave me alone many times uh, for uh, you know hours at a time. But he'd always want to see the cut at the end of the day on the movieola. The montage in that film is very striking, but especially towards the end when we kind of get to that moment of our main characters freak out. What was that like to kind of try to put that together and capture his feelings at that time? I mean, you really are the one that's speaking for the character at that moment. That's true. That's that's true, Mike. But in fairness to Evan Jones, the writer, uh, things like the swinging light globe when Doc Tyden is making his suggestive or homoerotic advances towards Gary Bond, um, that's all on the page. It's actually written. So I just followed what the writer was wanting and then Ted had shot the scenes the writer had written and then I was putting them together. Yes, you do a lot of finessing and you do a lot of double cutting, etc., etc. But in fairness, it should be acknowledged that Evan Jones wrote all of that and put it on the page. Just for folks who may not know, what would you consider double cutting? If the writer has suggested one cut, very often you'll put in two. But the writer has given you the idea in the first instance. You kind of made a transition right around this part, maybe a little bit after this. You're going from editing to producing, and you're kind of doing both at the same time. What was that like for you? Uh, going into producing was the blind leading the blind. Um, I hadn't the faintest idea what we were going to do, except that option, this book, which I'd read while I was cutting the film. Um, but what I observed uh, on Wake and Fright, I think George Willoughby was the, uh, what you would now call the line producer. He was there all day. But the other producers were of no help to Ted Kotcher at all. And in fact, George Willoughby wasn't of any uh, help to Ted Kotcher. And I, I observed all of this with great interest that really in the, in the main, it was Ted and I running the show. But I wasn't aware of that at the time until uh, afterwards when I realized that producers hadn't been of any help whatsoever. And I thought this was an unusual way to have to work. Whereas I thought I'd always presumed that producers should be um, at the you know the, the director's right and left hand to be there when the director needed help, which is probably why I enjoy producing even now because if your relationship with the director is as it should be uh, a good one, um, then you have a better picture and you have better morale amongst the crew and and and, and the cast. Um, but the transition from cutting something as severe as Wake and Fry to making Caddy, which strangely, even then, in 1976 and 1977, was very well received in the United States. And we had a 12-week season at the Plaza in New York. And once again, you're playing what is essentially to the New Yorker um, a foreign film with a strange English accent. So you were, are credited, and rightly so, as being the man who saved Wake and Fright. How did that come about? What possessed you to revisit this film? 
two of the producers, Bobby Lim and Jack Neary. Bobby Lim was originally a vaudevillian and, uh, and continued um, when vaudeville died in the theatres with the coming of television. He moved it into what we call the club scene. He and his partner, Jack Neary, were entrepreneurs in the true sense of the word. Bobby came to me in 1996. He said, well, do you think we could find the negative of Wake and Fright? And I <laughs> opened my big mouth and said, well, we'll be in a laboratory in London somewhere. And at the time in 96, there were about four laboratories left operating in London. And K's had become metro labs, etc., etc., and Denham, and so forth. Anyway, um, in 96, I think... I was using the fax machine. I would have been faxing more so than emailing uh, to find out where it was located. Um, the man from Metro Colour rang me from London and said, Tony, we we don't um, have Wake and Fright or Outback as it was called there. And um, But he said, we've got 19 other Australian films that we don't know who owns them. And I said, well, I don't want to, I don't want to know that. Thank you. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, it took 13 years of persistence to try and find where the negatives were. And it's thanks to a man in New York, Harvey Rappaport, uh, working for CBS, uh, who had inherited the Westinghouse company and didn't want to know about Outback or Wake and Fright ever. And... Harvey went up to Pittsburgh where the vaults are on the mountain there and said we had some 16mm prints. I said, no. I said, I'm looking for the tri-separations, the negative, and all the mixing tracks. Where, you know, why are they in Pittsburgh? We don't know. Um, he rang one day, which would be 2004, and said, you've got a week to, to get it. He said, I've just found it. He said, there's 273 cans in a dump bin to be destroyed. So uh, Ozfilm, uh, a facility in Los Angeles, Qantas and the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia got together and had the 273 cans picked up and transported here to Canberra, uh, where the National Film and Sound Archive is situated. And then from 2004 to 2009, through uh, a long process, restoration began, and then in 2009, it was launched to the world again and has been remarkably successful. Are you the guy who's coordinating Qantas and Ozfilm and all these parties in order to... No, I got as far as Ozfilm, and then Ozfilm took over uh, with Meg Labrum, L-A-B-R-U-M, Meg Labrum of the National Film and Sound Archive, which the uh, acronym for that is the NFSA. And once I'd found the, the, or located the negative through Harvey Rappaport, um, they took over and got it here to Australia. That's something I couldn't have possibly have done. When you approached Ozfilm and told them about this, were they fairly open to this idea? Yes, because we regard it down here uh, as the best film ever made in Australia. And we're careful in the wordage, the best film ever made in Australia, as opposed to saying it's an Australian film, because as you rightly observe, it's got a Canadian director, 
Jamaican script uh, and an English cast in the leads. But uh, I still think it's the best thing we've done in this country. Out of curiosity, what do you consider the best Australian film? Oh, that's a good question. Which decade would you would you like? I've just seen a I've just seen a an Australian film which is being launched at the Toronto Film Festival in um, September called Last Cab to Darwin, and I describe it as an iconic Australian film. It's not a navel gazing film student film. It's it's piece of Australian culture, not not unlike the setting of Wake and Fright, except it's a friendlier film. Um, I don't know what I consider the best Australian film. Probably something like John Hire's The Back of Beyond, which is more documentary than it is drama, but it's got actors in it. I think The Back of Beyond is is at the top. Um, a film called The Sentimental Bloke, 1919, which might frighten you, but in actual fact staggers people when they look at it, at how good and mature it is for that, that period. Um, Charles Ravel's Sons of Matthew would be rated up in the top. Uh, and in more recent times, films like Caddy, which not because I produced it, but it's become an iconic Australian film because being a barmaid was an Australian, um, uh, well, outside England, it was probably unique. Um, and then Bruce Burford's Breaker Morant was is rated pretty highly at the top here. Um, but it's a matter of um, what mood you're in at the time. You know, I vacillate for the best film, I think, in British cinema is The Third Man, a Carol Reed's film, but sometimes I'll pick another one. So. so you are still producing? Yes and no. I'm not looking for work, if that's what you're asking. Um I still read the occasional script as a consultant, but no, I'm doing documentaries um, because now with um, digital, uh, you can edit and sound mix and do everything at home on the Final Cut Pro program or whatever new program you're using. Um, and I, at the moment, uh, have, have a film in the marketplace called Ghost Trains, Forgotten Railways, which is selling like hotcakes, which is taking me by, a bit by surprise. And you've also written an autobiography. Can you tell me a little bit about Behind a Velvet Light Trap? Well, it's not the world's bestseller. Um, I sell about one copy a month on, on PayPal. Um, it sold about 800, 900 copies when it was released which is, is the hardcover book, which I think was a mistake. It would have been more accessible if it had been softcover and a cheaper price. Um, it's regarded uh, as compulsory reading by the film school here uh, and anyone wanting to know about producing. And that's very satisfactory to me, satisfying to me, that at least it's 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 not just talking about oneself. It's a, it's talking about the films and how they come to be, and um, it's it's gone down quite well in that regard, and it still sells. So that's something. Um, it was published in 2009, and it's still uh, being asked for. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you've been working in the industry now for about 60 years. Of all the stuff that you've worked on, editing, producing, what have you, 
what are some of your favorite ones? What are what are the ones that you would recommend to folks if they aren't familiar with your work and really should check something out? If they wanted to, uh, an arc across the decades, certainly Caddy, or from an editing point of view, Wake and Fright, put Wake and Fright at the top and then come to Caddy, and then come to Bliss, Ray Lawrence's film, which is described in this country as a landmark Australian film, uh, which caused one of the biggest walkouts at Cannes in, in 1986. I always described the banging of the seats could have been mistaken for applause. Um, and then more recently, Oyster Farmer, which uh, was the hit at the Toronto International Film Festival in 2004, uh, Anna Reid's film. Uh, so you've got Caddy, Bliss, Oyster Farmer covering three decades and waiting like going back yet another decade. You know, I have to tell you that there's not, in the days of video stores here in the U.S., there weren't necessarily a lot of Australian films represented on the shelves, but I specifically remember the cover art for Bliss. <laughs> well, the American cover or the uh, Australian cover? I think it was the American one. It was the uh, elephant sitting on the car and the... Um, yeah, there is. No, Ray doesn't like the American one. He thinks they caricaturize it. And, and um, the the one that sells, the poster that sold it in France and uh, the UK, is uh, the Vision Splendid, which is the opening scenes of Bliss. Uh, that's the one sheet of poster here, um, which I like a lot. Uh, the, I know what the American distributor was coming at. He knew he had a difficult film. So he was trying to, he was trying to attract attention. Uh, and, and I understood exactly where the poster was coming from. But it sort of um, made it a bit hokey, I thought. I want to ask you one more question as far as your autobiography. I've always been curious when it comes to folks when they write their autobiography, as far as did you run into instances where your memory of things were different than the memories of other people that you happen to be writing about? No. Um, the surprising thing is, because I've kept everything, and notes and diaries and what have you, uh, and very often just on a diary entry is just the name of somebody, like Mike, say, Mike White, today, Saturday, the 14th of um, um, August, and no, no one will know what it means except me. Um, people have been astonished at my memory uh, and how I recall things, and they've said, we remember that. How on earth can you be so precise? And I said, well, it's just that I just think that way. In other words, none of it's uh, imaginary, which I think autobiographies can be dangerous because you, you think of something and you might have it completely wrong. But no, I've been credited uh, that my memory is accurate and my reporting on things. Uh, so that's been um, a big tick for the book. That's fantastic. And what wonderful skill to have to be an editor and a producer, you know, to have a, a great memory like that. I can remember everything from what we've been talking about. I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> you know, we have an expression down here, you know, oh, God, there's another seniors moment. <laughs> I'm glad you've spoken to Ted. He's older than I am, which is something. <laughs> he was a hit down here when he came back uh, for the relaunch of the film. <laughs> and um, his cameraman, Brian West, he probably, heard, he probably told you this, 
that when Brian arrived at Sydney and stepped off the aeroplane, uh, which in 1970 there were no airports like there are now, no air bridges, you climbed down the steps of the aeroplane onto the tarmac. He looked around him and his camera crew were waiting to meet him. And he said, the problem with this country, he said, it's one stop overexposed. <laughs> Referring to referring to the light. We were talking about that whole idea of the uh, the color palette for the film. Well, I think it's pretty true. I don't know what you've seen it on, whether it's a DVD or, or you've seen a print. Certainly, the print is accurate. What was that like for you seeing Wake and Freight again after all those years? The first thing we had to do when we retrieved the negative was take the American version scenes out of uh, Gary Bond in the hotel, for example, in the. Australian English versions, he's naked, but he had to wear underwear for the American version, so we had to get rid of all that uh, <laughs> and put it back to the way it was intended. Um, but you've got to remember that censorship in 1970 was quite different to what it is now, and American distributors were. I mean, in Age of Consent, the restored version is terrific because we, Helen Mirren didn't use an understudy, even though one was provided. And in the close-ups where you see the water lapping up against the pubic hairs, um, that was banned in America. We had to replace all those shots with wide-angle shots, and it could have been anybody standing in the water uh, while Mason was painting her. Um, so they've all been reinstated thanks to a man at Columbia called Grover Crisp. But um, there are the changes that you, you notice that you were allowed to go back and put the original footage there, uh, which was uh, but seeing Wake and Fright, I'm surprised that it hadn't dated very much. But then Broken Hill hasn't dated very much either. <laughs> Ted was telling me yesterday that he had some interesting run-ins with the locals. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised he was never thumped by, by them. Um, the two-up game was shot in Sydney, and he went round to the pub. He'd go round to the pubs at lunchtime uh, in the suburb in which the studio was situated and talk to the blokes of the bar, and they must have wondered what on earth had hit them. And he did you want a game of two-up at the end of the week? And he, ra he, ra he wrangled all these extras. And unfortunately, the uh, fake money they had in the banknotes on the set, uh, although they thought they collected it every night at the end of shooting, um, some of it turned up at Randwick Racecourse in Sydney on a Saturday, and all hell broke loose. But um, no, he had a few run-ins, I think, in Broken Hill, but it's not hard to have a run-in with somebody in Broken Hill. Well, it sounds very much like the way that it was shot, pretty remote and pretty rustic. Well, you see, the kangaroo hunt, most of that footage uh, was shot uh, before Christmas, at the end of 1969, by John McLean, more or less as the newsreel footage. Ted, like everybody else, had heard about these kangaroo hunts and didn't believe it, and was <laughs> totally taken in by it all when when he went up to Broken Hill before that Christmas, and they shot what I call the newsreel footage. Um, and then, of course, when in January the production started in earnest, I'd cut preliminary footage of all the of the kangaroo hunt, uh, so they could do the staged scenes to integrate uh, 
with the footage. Um, but um, I could take you up there tonight and you'd still see the same thing. That's the unbelievable thing about it all. I do have to compliment you as far as the way that that hunt cut together. It looks like those guys are the ones who are hunting those kangaroos. It is just so seamless the way that you integrated the footage of the, the hunt and the actors. To be very honest with you, that part of it wasn't hard to do. Um, probably it was harder for Ted to stage the scenes to to cut into it. But we got we got through it all. Um, the kangaroo chase, the car chase, that was that was the footage that was probably took longer to cut and get it right. And I think it is right. Although I can look at a film now and say, this is another foot I could take out. Can I go and do it? <laughs> Were you tempted to do any of those tweaks during the uh, restoration? No, no. I wanted the restoration to be in situ, um, with the exception of the scenes that were never seen in Australia with um, Gary Bond in his underwear. Um, we made sure that the original went back in, as I've described to you. Um, but no, we didn't do any tweaking. Uh, that would have been, I think... Um, wrong to do that. So you've talked about the films that you've made recently. You've talked about your autobiography. Where can people get those? Uh, au. All the films are on DVD by a distributor through Umbrella Entertainment in Melbourne. My book is available online. It's, it's the problem with overseas, though, Mike, is it's expensive to post. In fact, the postage is more expensive than the book. <laughs> but it's there. It's available. Was Wake and Fright your first feature film? Look, I had a small role in a, a, a feature film called The Girl from Peking with Nancy Kwan. And, uh, but it was as a Russian spy, and I had one line, and it was Nyet. Strictly speaking, Wake and Fright was my uh, second feature film, but it was certainly my first role in a, in a feature film. It was... Uh, a wonderful and exciting experience for me. And what I learned working uh, with Ted Kotcheff uh, on Waking Fright just set me up for the rest of uh, the next 10 years at least of my career until another director said, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> 
no, it was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. I was curious, what was kind of the mood of the film industry at the time? Because I know that there have been some shifts in the government around then, and the labor government uh, promised to reestablish the film industry in Australia. The mood around the film industry was one of great excitement. There hadn't been a film industry for some time. So these two films were being made, two uh, feature films were being made around the same time. There's Nick Bogue's Walkabout and Ted Kotcheff's Waking Fright. And so these two directors from outside the country had come in and using this all Australian crews, the Australian crews had... Uh, built up around the making of documentaries, the making of trade film, and some television work. But uh, when when these two films were, were being made, then the Producers Directors Guild of Australia was so excited that this was the beginning of, and is seen as the beginning of a renaissance of the Australian film industry. So for those of us who were there, uh, at the time, it really was like, boy, this is like riding a cresting wave because once these two films had been produced, then other films followed. And there was a real, a very real resurgence of uh, filmmaking in Australia. It was a very exciting time. When it came to that uh, filmmaking, probably mostly in the in the 70s, but I imagine even beyond that, was it more of an idea of Australians making movies making movies for Australians or Australians making movies to be seen kind of on the world stage? Initially, we made movies uh, for Australians. We Initially, we made movies for Australians because, as I've, I've said before, um, if, when you first hand the kids some crayons and some paper uh, and uh, draw here, draw something, they will draw the house daddy's car, the dog, sister, whatever. They draw what is home to them, what is their immediate life experience. And I, in, in those early, heady years of the renaissance of industry in this country, we made films about us because no one had been making films about us, and we certainly hadn't been. When I was a kid, when we played goodies and baddies, we would always adopt American accents because those were the goodies and baddies we had seen and known on the screen. And if we played war games, which we did coming out of the war, then we almost inevitably adopted British accents because we saw a lot of British films about the war, A Cruel Sea and, and one thing or another. And so uh, we identified in that way. But we never saw Australians on screen. Chips Rafferty were occasionally there as a sort of token Australian. So when we started making film, we were making film initially for us. Once we discovered that we could make film and that it could be successful, of course, we decided we should make international film. And we weren't quite sure what that was, <laughs> so we made whatever we could. We were quite clear when we were making films uh, for Australia about Australians. And then, of course, we progressed into making, I believe, some very important films, very often with themes associated with our culture. Nevertheless, with a storyline, uh, a point of view that was universal. I know Chips Rafferty was in Wake and Fright, but... He was indeed. 
as in the iconic policeman. I spent quite some time with Chips. I'd known Chips as a, when I was a boy. I'd known Chips as an older man. Uh, there was a television series that uh, I was in uh, immediately after uh, the making of Wake and Fright. Uh, and Chips uh, was in uh, a couple of episodes of that television series. I saw quite a bit of Chips. He was uh, a grand, the grand old man of Australian cinema. Yeah, he definitely, for me, for a lot of years, was kind of that face of Australian cinema. Yeah, of course. And he was. What was it like working with Gary Bond on the film? It was great working with Gary. Gary, well, Gary was involved as... As you know, as the school teacher, uh, he enjoyed his time with us, but he, I think as part of his uh, involvement with the role, he uh, was more removed uh, from us. Uh, I think that helped him. We, all, we certainly sat around uh, on the weekend and joked and laughed. He was a, a very nice, intelligent young man, my fellow, about the same age, it seemed at the time, anyway. And how about uh, Donald Pleasance? Donald Pleasance was a miracle. <laughs> Donald Pleasance taught me an enormous amount just working with him. It's the nature of the craft of acting that it's it's kind of like playing tennis. You play tennis with a good tennis player. You don't have to ask them what their tricks are or observe carefully. Just the simple act of playing on the other side of the net teaches you something. Your game improves. Uh, working with Donald, Donald was fabulous. Donald said something to me that has been with me for the rest of my life, uh, my working life as an actor. And also, I quoted him saying it in uh, the obituary for the Australian newspaper that uh, they asked me to write when Donald uh, passed away. And uh, he said, we were standing around, Gary Bond, myself, Peter Whittle, the other uh, minor slash kangaroo shooter, and uh, Donald. We were standing around talking, and, and the, the younger actors, ourselves, Peter, myself, and, and Gary Bond, were talking about the difference between stage and screen for an actor. And we were quite excited about it because Ted was very involved with the actors as a director, and Donald, uh, the, the older man, and with uh, already uh, screen credits, great screen credits, um, he uh, stood there listening for a while, and then he was called to the set. And as he went to the set, he walked around past me, around the back, and uh, he said, so loud enough for us all to hear, he said, Feed the camera, Jack. And I've never forgotten that. And only the other day I was uh, working with Rachel Griffith and uh, we were talking about it and she cracked up. She said, isn't that wonderful? You know, that's what we do. We feed the camera. I'm feeding the camera. And people, people never talk about it in those terms or teach it even in those terms. But you learn that that's what you do. In the same way as your performance on stage feeds the audience, your performance in film feeds the camera. And if you're conscious of that, then you're actually delivering a performance for the camera. Donald was wonderful. He was a, a consummate actor. I think that his performance is fabulous in the film. I think it is one of the great comic performances in cinema. 
it's bizarre and all of that, but it is also one of the great comic performances. It's extraordinary. What was your experience like on that kangaroo hunt? The kangaroo hunt is fake in that we are the shots of us looking down the sights of of a rifle uh, and there's shots of us shooting at there was one wonderful kangaroo who actually gets a credit in the movie, Nelson, because he had one eye. One of that eye had been damaged. He was brought in alive and tranquilized, and that's the kangaroo that uh, Peter Whittle wrestles. But the rest of the kangaroo shoot, or the actual shooting at kangaroos and kangaroos being hit, was all shot separately. They went out, they cinematographers and Ted went out on a professional kangaroo hunt because there are people who do it for a living. They go out and they shoot kangaroos and it's it's for dog meat essentially or was then. So all of that I had nothing I, I wasn't there, you know, for that. It's not as if it hasn't ever happened to me in my life because uh, in my early teens I was out uh in the bush out in western New South Wales and working on a sheep and wheat farm. And they would go out once every six to eight weeks uh, and uh, shoot kangaroos, run them down the side of a fence and shoot them, shoot about four or five kangaroos and then bring them back to uh, feed the 10, 12 dogs that they were using for rounding up sheep. So uh, I was aware of what it was to be on a kangaroo hunt. and uh, But it, there was no kangaroo hunt uh, for the making of the film, as I say, uh, other than the professional hunt. So much of the movie seems to really just be centered around the idea of manliness, machismo, and what makes a person a man. And I really kind of pick up on that in in some of the films from the 70s. Was that kind of a major concern at the time when it came to Australia kind of almost proving itself as a a player on the world stage? That's interesting. It may well have been a factor. I think that it was also, like America... This is uh, a country with a very strong frontier tradition. Uh, And the frontier tradition, of course, is the tradition of the strong men, the men who can handle it, the men who can fell a tree, the men who can build a house, uh, and a lot of men without women um, in the frontier. And uh, so I think that that theme was very strong when we started to examine ourselves as a culture and to present that on screen. The films were, uh, film generally is is not made by uh, men with accents and the ability to pick up a, a, an oxen and <laughs> live on the frontier. It's made by um, very urban people and very urban people of the 20th century and all of that. And I think that they needed, in a way, to examine this frontier machismo element of our society 
because they've been brought up with it and they had felt alienated by it and they needed to say, so what is this that is uh, such a powerful part of the Australian ethos? Uh, so I think that's why it's a powerful theme throughout. Um, and as I say, I think, uh, I think, you know, there are obviously strong parallels in the uh, American film industry, particularly in the uh, concept of the Western, but uh, in other areas too, you know, the war movies, uh, the world of the man, and the importance of uh, that uh, masculine ethos to really to the world that we still live in, in spite of us being a little more liberated than we were. <laughs> I'm just uh, try, uh, examining in a way to answer the question because it's there and it is a, and I have thought about it and it is a very strong part of the ethos. It still is. I mean, boy, football's there every week. <laughs> you know, and there's not a lot of big girl teams. <laughs> well, yeah, even thinking of stuff like, you know, Sunday Too Far Away or, yeah, or, or John yeah. Peterson or, or, for God's sakes, talking about football, the club. I mean, yes. just... You, know, you played some really manly characters back in the in the seventies. Oh yeah. Well, they looked for heroes. Uh, you know, and I was seen as a young man, relatively good looking, you know. <laughs> so they were looking for heroes. The heroes were all these kind of men, it seemed. They're all the well central figures anyway, not necessarily heroes, but these central figures. Yeah, Peterson's interesting in that area because he is uh contemporary urban and kind of confused. David Williamson's first screenplay, not for his absolute first screenplay because he wrote a little uh, part for uh, a movie called Libido, which in which I first played. Now that's all about awkward masculinity. So it's an examin- it is an examination of the awkward masculinity. Ian Peterson is awkward and his uh, masculinity, he feels that he's kind of very macho and then feels that he needs to be kind of intellectual and it doesn't seem to work for him and he's confused by his loyalties to his family and the the intellectual mistress that he gets involved with. So it's certainly an examination of that masculinity. When it came to Wake and Fright, what was the reaction like to kind of putting Australia under the microscope and having these, you know, the the British leading man and, and Donald Pleasance and then Ted Koch of the Canadian taking a look at Australia from this outsider point of view and showing this kind of insider view of the world? The Australian audience was horrified. They left the theater in droves saying, no, 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 this is not us. This is not who we are. No, 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 this isn't it. The movie ran for seven days in Sydney and 10 days in Melbourne, I believe. And the reviews were, uh, the reviewers uh, mostly were positive. There were people who, uh, there were some reviews that said that this was an out outrageously negative view of who we are and that you know it was a, a caricature and so on. But those of us who had made the film, the filmmakers themselves knew that this was a good film, a good movie. It's it's a great ensemble cast and it 
and it takes a wonderful look at our society. Oh, it's fabulous. It's it's uh, Ted brought his outsider's eye, and his outsider's, outsider's eye is Canadian. And there's a lot of similarity in the Canadian frontier and the Australian frontier and the same kind of macho ethos and all of that. So he was able to look at it uh, and see that and, and bring it to the screen. But it's interesting in talking with Ted. He said that, uh, he said at the time, he said, you know, there are a lot of people that were critical uh, of it and saying how awful it was for uh, the Gary Bond character, the school teacher, and all. And he said, yeah, it was awful for for him. But he was a weak man in an environment that demanded something else, and he was unable to bring himself to it. He wanted out of there, and there were a whole lot of people who lived there. It's one of the wonderful line of Donald Pleasance's that when he says to to uh, Gary Bond in character, he, he Gary's character uh, is uh, complaining about the uh, nature of these two other guys, myself and Peter Whittle's character, and, and saying, you know, it's all they want to drink. If you don't drink, it's this and that and down and down. They just they just want to drink and brawl and what, what is this? And and Donald says. They're miners. They spend all week underground. It's hell where they are. It's hell where they live. This is the weekend. What did you expect them to do? Sing opera? Yeah, I think the the, the effect on the Australian uh, audience was quite dramatic. They they didn't respond affectionately to this very accurate depiction. Having lived out in the bush, I mean, boy, it wasn't inaccurate. The wonderful scenes in the RSL Club, the Return Soldiers Club, with the, the poker machines, and they all stop for a moment while while they're, they remember the fall, and, and then the moment that it's finished, it's back to the machines again, and this, this uh, obsessive gambling and drinking going on. But it was uh, it was brave, and it was necessary. I, you have to be able to look at who you are if you're going to. Uh, speak in the language of the lingua franca of our age, the screen, you have to certainly be able to look. It can't all be fantasy. And uh, I, I, I think it had an extraordinary effect, really, on what followed in television in Australia and in film that we were able to look at. I, I, without without uh, Wake and Fright, there would have been no Sunday too far away. John Dingle, who wrote Sunday Too Far Away, had seen Wake and Fright, but he also had the experience of talking to his brother-in-law, who was a god of Shearer, who was like a champion Shearer. And the story of the Shearer's strike and all of that was, was relayed to him, and he thought, that's right, this is the story. I have to tell this story, because this story of the bush, this story of the outback, is already up there on screen. I can tell the story too, and and so he did. Uh, and I think that on television, you began to get uh, soapies uh, like uh, uh, one called Ninety Six and another one called The Box. And for the first time, 
people were on screen actually talking with an Australian accent because before that they were required to talk with uh, a mid-Atlantic or whatever. My father once said to me, you know what's in the middle of the Atlantic? Nothing. That's the kind of accent you end up with. <laughs> people didn't want to sound Australian, didn't want to be. There was like this cultural cringe that we were this outpost of the empire at the other end of the world and that whatever we did was somehow less than it ought to be. So it wasn't a matter of seeing ourselves with pride so much as simply seeing ourselves that we had to get used to. And that's what was there in Waking Fright. It was who we are. Now, as one of the Australian cast members of the film, did you get any crap for being associated with this movie that might not have been painting the perfect picture of your country? Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> they took one look at that madman with his head out the toe of a car screaming across the countryside with a rifle in his hand. They're not going to criticize me. <laughs> Who knows? He might shoot you. <laughs> No, I didn't receive too much criticism, and not long after, I was, of course, employed in another movie, and another movie, it was a very exciting time. Yeah, I was going to say, by 1974, here you are, the titular, you know, Peterson in, in Jack Peterson. That's right. It, in no time at all. In no time at all. It was scary. I was in every movie, and by the time Breaking Moran... Um, went to uh, the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, I was described as the flagship of the Australian film industry. And I, somebody said, how does that feel? I said, it's very scary. Well, what happens if the flagship sinks? You, know? <laughs> you were saying that uh, Ted Kotcheff kind of taught you for the first 10 years. Would you say that Bruce Bearford was for those next 10 years? Uh, yes, uh, Bruce, Bruce provided the same kind of focus. By then, of course, he had a much uh, more experienced actor to work with. Ted had a very uh, inexperienced young actor. I started my professional career in uh, 1968, and we were shooting Wake and Friday in 1969. So I had really about a year under my belt of uh, television bits and pieces. And prior to that, I, I had a, I had theater, amateur theater, and so-called semi-professional theater, which really meant that they paid your fare and accommodation. And we did Shakespeare for schools and uh, a bit of Chekhov and stuff like that. But that's what led to that conversation between the three of us uh, on the set about the difference between stage and, and uh, screen as for an actor. But Bruce brought focus to uh, my performance in a very particular way. He is himself a very focused director, and yeah, he brought focus. And I, I, Ted, Ted taught me the things you need to learn very early, of course. He, ta he taught me, you know, I, I would present, uh, uh, and he would say, look, that's, we did a lot of improvisation and rehearsal coming to the to the actual shoot of the movie. I can remember him saying that that's that's great for a rehearsal. And I thought I had just given everything I had. I thought I'd brought everything I knew to it. And he just said, that's great for a rehearsal. It's going to have to be a lot better than that. And I, I thought, wow, what am I looking at here? <laughs> I, I, was, I had tears in my eyes. You know, it's like, 
Oh, I'm falling apart. Can I get there? Can I get there? And, but they, he knew I could get there. He was a part of driving that and showing me where I had these strengths and and how involved I had to be, not not at all superficial. To involve the involvement was uh, important and absolute. And in those scenes where we're driving and that mad chase across the landscape in that car, in a scene that you wouldn't even be allowed to do now, occupational health and safety would stop it happening. Ted Kotcheff is in that vehicle. He's lying at our feet in the front of that vehicle, whooping and hollering and making us go faster and crazier. I mean, he was a rocket. He was a rocket. And uh, we were riding that rocket. And you felt that energy throughout. But he also taught me things like, I, can, I remember I'd raised, I raised one eyebrow in a quizzical way. And he said, don't do that. I said, well, it's kind of part of the character. You know? and, and, and he said, well, let me tell you, Jack, in close-up, that eyebrow goes up six feet on the screen. Is that the kind of thing you want us to see? I, I immediately stopped raising the eyebrow quizzically. <laughs> and I can remember him also saying this really tight shot, I believe associated with the kangaroo shoot right tight on the face. And um, he said, don't act. And I said, I'm not acting. He said, yes, you are. You're acting. And I looked at him and he said, let me tell you, all you have to do is feel it, think it, just think it. Because if you think it, the camera will see it. It's so intimate. He taught me the intimacy of, of cinema. And I, I saw recently in the uh, documentary on, on Brando, listen to me, Marlon, uh, one of the things that he say, says is uh, uh, that you recognize in film that in close-up, your face is the entire proscenium, the entire theater. So all you have to do, as Ted said, is think it. It'll be seen. The eye is the window and the face is the mirror to the soul. <laughs> Can you tell me, what was it like working on Mad Dog Morgan? I love working on Mad Dog Morgan. When I heard that uh, Dennis Hopper was to play Mad Dog Morgan, I thought that was a great idea. I admired uh, Dennis as uh, a filmmaker, of course. Um, and uh, when he arrived, he often uh, told the story that uh, we met. Uh, I arranged a meeting with him. I wanted to meet with him. Uh, we met at a hotel and that he was staying at. And uh, I said, no, this, you have to know who the Bush Rangers are to this country, to these people, to the people of Australia. They're not, it's not simple heroism, but they are heroes. They are the voice of the free man in a penal colony. That's who they are, the voice of a free man in a penal colony. And there have been a number of attempts to portray them. Uh, a, notable, a notable failure had occurred in... Ned Kelly, in which they cast um, Mick Jagger as Kelly. Not a terrible film, but it fails utterly to understand the concept of who these people were to the community around them and where these people come from and what their lives had been 
I said to Dennis, you know, you 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 have this role. It's in your hand. This had better be good, Dennis, because if it's not, you will never, ever be forgiven in this country. And he just looked at me and laughed. <laughs> and he produced, uh, I believe, the best portrayal, the most faithful portrayal of an Australian Bush Ranger that we have on screen. And I was very happy to play the hero or anti-heroes, Nemesis, and uh, Mr. Mannering, who was brought out from uh, England for the sole purpose of running down Mad Dog Morgan and capturing him. And Dennis was wild, scary sometimes to people, not to me. Some people thought he was scary. But that's not a bad thing, since he was playing a man that people were terrified of. I loved working with him. I found I found his wholeheartedness, his absolute involvement, and, and powerful performance was something that I delighted in working with. We didn't have direct confrontational scenes. I was always hunting him, and he was in the distance. But I loved what he did with the movie, and I, I loved the strength and power that he brought to it. I don't think that movie would be remembered at all if it were not for Dennis's performance. I've got another one I want to ask you about. Um, sorry, I'll try not to just keep picking little movies and stuff. <laughs> I, I know your time is valuable here, but there are a couple where they're just so personal to me. You're just so legendary that I have to ask you about them since you were involved. Can you tell me about Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I Now, there's another directorial influence uh, in a totally different way. Nagisa Oshima, or as the Japanese would say, Oshima Kantoku, Kantoku meaning director. He had us read the scene. We all read the scene together. And then um, he would make little notes at the end of the scene. He would say, I don't think he's quite as angry as that, or I think he's more uh, inclined to please or whatever, but there were small notes. And uh, then uh, we shot the movie. He had a four-to-one shooting ratio. Uh, the, everything was one take, with the exception of uh, a lizard that had uh, 16 takes because it would not stay in the right place. And, and I can remember Tom Conti saying, well, they're working for a genius, Jack, a bloody madman. When I've, uh, I have I have said to pretty much every including Ted, um, I'm an instrument in your orchestra. You tell me what it is you want, and uh, I'll bring it to you. If you want a high C with a vibrato, you'll get it. Make sure it is what you want, because that's what you'll get. Uh, and over the years, I've become more uh, and more able to bring whatever it is you want to it. Uh, of course, it uh, it's me, and of course, it's my performance. But you tell me what it is you want. And uh, so I was, before we went to shoot Merry Christmas, Miss Lawrence, we were there in Auckland, New Zealand, and, um, and I had said this uh, to uh, Nagisa Oshima, and he's... And, uh, the dinner went on, and then I turned to him and I said, so what is it you want? And he said, uh, I have seen three of your film. You're a very good actor. That's all I want. 
<laughs> so thank goodness I had been given all of that early training at the hands of the Dutch because I was asked to draw on that. I've seen your work. It's good. That's what I, you know, do that, you know, and, but, and he was totally cooperative when you needed to you know, place the scene. He was like, yeah, okay, well, well, this is how I would see it, the camera here and uh, uh, and then if you wanted to make little alterations, you would consult his uh, DOP and make those alterations. It was like, it's on you. you. You're the actors. You'll do it. And there are occasional little pieces of continuity is not quite right. But for him, it was like uh, that whole concept of the Chinese-Japanese brush painting. You practice, you practice, you practice. And then at that moment, there's just a stroke, da, 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 and there it is. It's a perfect depiction of a, a sprig of bamboo with the leaves and, and, and the stem of the bamboo. There may be a couple of little splashes of ink, but that's a part of the activity of making it. So if there were minor errors in continuity or light or whatever, for him, it was a part of that energy of making the film was uh, very interesting, very confronting, and very exciting. If you ever had to trust your craft, it was under those circumstances. And it was great working with Bowie and and, and uh, with Ryuichi Sakamoto, whose fabulous music in that uh, uh, set him up then to uh, go on and make the music for Last Emperor. But I think it's some of the most haunting film music there is. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And, and Pete Takeshi, uh, who played the, uh, the sergeant who says, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, uh, of course, is a, a wonderful uh, jazz musician and uh, comic character in Japanese film and, and television. I can remember David Bowie coming to Tom Conti and myself and saying, look, you chaps are the actors. I'm not, strictly speaking, an actor. So if there's anything you see that you feel I ought to know, please tell me. He was wonderfully, fabulously modest and interesting. An interesting man, an interesting man. From what I understand, you are uh, a big fan of Banjo Patterson. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with his work, and did that lead you into The Man from Snowy River? Banjo Patterson, together with Henry Lawson, the great balladeers of the late 19th, early 20th century. Their work was uh, published along with a, a number of other balladeers, including... Breaker Moran, who uh, submitted poetry to a magazine called The Bulletin. They were known as the Bulletin Balladeers or the Bulletin Poets. And it was a time before radio. What happened was that each week the Bulletin came out and people in their living room, where there would be a piano where they could sing songs, someone could play piano, there were people who played the instruments of various kinds, the violin, whatever. And someone would read this week's ballads from from the bulletin. And uh, Patterson was one of the great favorites. He was able to capture something of the spirit of the front. the, the, The unofficial national anthem of Australia is Walsing the Tilder. He wrote that after someone told him a story out in the bush about this 
mad swagman who, rather than be captured, throw himself into the river and drown. So as a child, we were all brought up with a lot of this frontier balladry. And so I had uh, heard Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson as a child. And the uh, man from Snowy River, who was a, a poem taught at schools, and we all said the thing together, So a wonderful uh, other poem of his called Clancy of the Overflow. And I play the character Clancy in The Man from Snowy River, the movie. So for someone to make... Uh, a movie of this great ballad. In fact, the movie covers much more than the ballad. The ballad is about from the moment that all the horsemen gather until the moment the the guy brings back the uh, runaway stallion together with the rest of the horses. And so we were brought up with that. And it was really after that that people said, oh, you're, you're Clancy of the Overwhelmed Donner, you should read me, say, or, you know, can you quote the poem? And I can't quote the poem. I, I, I can quote some lines from it. But so someone asked me to read it. The person who asked me to read it was a woman who was a producer, a film producer, and she said, that's wonderful. It sounds like her father used to, uh, was of that generation where they could quote these poems. And when she would, they would, the children would go away on the weekend in the car for a holiday or a picnic somewhere, their father would be reciting these poems as entertainment for the kids. So she said, would you record it? I recorded it. And since then, I've recorded a collection of the works of Banjo Patterson. But it was really the other way around, though that I played this iconic Australian character, Clancy of the Overflow. And uh, there was then asked to uh, read The Man from Snowy River. It is a fabulous ballad. And uh, when it's presented properly, it becomes a kind of a movie in your head. It's a really beautiful thing. You've been in so many different movies over the years, and I was curious, what are some of your favorite ones? What are some of the ones that you would wish more people would, would talk about or ask you about? Uh, you've, you've covered pretty much the movies that I would want people to talk about. Bad people do, but um, there's one uh, that was made uh, in New Zealand. Uh, Mike Newell, the British director, it was his first feature film. It's called Bad Blood. For a long time, I felt that uh, my that was my best performance. There are moments I would see it and think, that's scary. I don't know, even know how I got there. That's very disturbing. And I, my mother, bless her heart, who had some experience on stage as a young one, and was always my most honest critic. She was originally from New Zealand, but she said um, that she thought... When she saw the movie, she said, I don't think you'll ever do better than that. And, uh, she, and then went on to say, but why make a film about that? <laughs> she terribly depressing and uh, something that she wasn't happy to be sitting in the theater. Because it is, it's a, it's a sad, dark film, but it's a real life story. The other one is also a real-life story. Um, the the movie I did with uh, Sean Penn, uh, The Assassination of Richard Nixon, which I think is a really fine movie, and and it's a very different me. I, I, I love Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. 
I did uh, with Clint Eastwood and company. I'm stopping about the movies. It's a pretty rich, <laughs> pretty rich experience. I really loved you in uh, The Some of Us. I would always add that to the list. I just sort of wandering off. I'd forgotten we hadn't talked to Some of Us. I love The Some of Us. I think it is, I think that's a great piece. The, it was a great stage play originally, and it was really interesting shooting at sort of the asides, the breaking down of the fourth wall, speaking directly to the camera and all that. We tried doing it with just looking at the camera and thinking it and putting the voice over, and it just didn't work at all. You have to direct those asides that are, of course, in a stage play directly to the audience. They're wonderful stuff. I And I think that it's the most fabulously written piece. David wrote a great piece, and uh, it was a joy to play. And I think it was very brave, uh, a brave thing for Russell to play the son. Um, it was early in his career, relatively early in his career. Uh, it wasn't as if he hadn't done other movies. And he really wanted to do it. We spent time together, and we've remained close friends ever since. It's as if we bonded making that movie in a very special way. And I think it's um, it will always be a really beautiful film. Uh, people, it, it made a, a big difference to a lot of people. They were able to take their parents to it and try and explain their coming out and stuff like that. But there was a moment... That really surprised me. There have been people, uh, like a woman coming up and saying, you know, thank you for making that picture, Mr. Thompson, because my son took me along and I hadn't realized and da 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 and one thing another. But we were at an airport and there was uh, an elderly couple uh, sitting on a bench and the man, as I, I went to uh, go to the ticket counter, the man said, uh, Mr. Thompson, I just want to thank you for that movie, and I thought, ah, well, another family with uh, uh, a gay son or daughter or whatever, and uh, I sort of nodded, and he said, I just want to thank you, because people don't think that elderly people could fall in love. I knocked me out. That's wonderful. Was that right? And that, the, that's a powerful theme in, in the film, powerful moment in the film, when when the son says to the woman who's been so disturbed by the son's homosexuality that she's leaving, and he says to her, it's a shame. He really did like you. You know that? It's a very sad moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that movie is something else. Yeah, it sure is. It's an extraordinary movie. And, uh, you know, that very, I can remember a guy coming up... Uh, saying, oh, yeah, but do you think there are any Harrys? It's the father that I played. Yeah, but do you think there really are any Harrys? And I said, well, I know there are. (laughs) Just ask David, the playwright. He said to me, he wrote that that play about his father and about the men he had known in Australia working as a writer in the television industry, all of whom had totally accepted his homosexuality. So... It's a great movie.
right, we are back, and we are talking about Wake and Fright. Now, Morris, I know that you said that before you watched the movie, you read the book, and I kind of did the opposite. I've been reading the book after seeing the movie a few times. For me, I haven't finished the book yet, even though it's only, what, 140-some pages. It's a very quick read. It's just been a matter of like crazy timing schedules lately. But what I see really compares favorably to what's in the film. How about your experience with oh, that? Oh, absolutely. Look, I read the book and I still got the same sense of dread and the same sense of fear that I got in the film. And to get that same sweaty feeling twice, you know, once with the book and once with the film is absolutely amazing. It shows that Ted Kotcheff was not just being faithful to the story. And really, there's, there's not much, hardly anything in the way. There's maybe one or two bits. I can't remember exactly. There's possibly one or two bits that are different. But for the most part, he sticks faithfully to the story. But more to the point, Ted has gone to some trouble to recreate this fearful world. And Kenneth Cook really encapsulates that in, yeah, as you say, about 150 pages. He does that absolutely perfectly. I agree completely. To me, the book and the film are virtually the same experience. And that's very rare. In particular, I mean, it was Hitchcock who said that you shouldn't bother making good books because they're good books. You know, just take bad books that have a good story and make them into good movies. But this is a good book, and it's a good movie, and they are extremely similar. I'd read that Kenneth Cook had actually lived in Broken Hill, which which was the town that they used as Bundan Yabba in the film. And so, you know, his time staying there really lent the book and eventually the film that level of authenticity. So, uh, you know, really, I guess he was... Very au fait, if that's the word, in you know creating this mood, creating this level of testosterone, creating this feeling of what it was like being a town full of men. And uh, Ted Kotcheff had gone and said that the film, uh, well, sorry, filming in Broken Hill, the population of men to women was something like three to one. And if Kenneth Cook had realised that at the time as well, so that really probably helped create this feeling, create this mood that he did throughout the book because, you know, it wasn't just telling a great story. It, it was the language that he used. And it was you know, pretty simple, pretty direct, and it just completely worked. Now, I know it's 45 years since the film came out, but as a little fun thing for me to do, and I really appreciate that we kind of live in a world where I can do this, I went to Google Maps and I put in Broken Hill and saw what the town is like today. And more than being downtown in Broken Hill, which looks like a nice little town, there's a nice little downtown, there's a lot of suburbs, this kind of stuff, I went out a few miles, just a few miles out of town, like just it's funny how civilization once it starts it's there it's like all of a sudden there are houses there's not like little things here and there that i was seeing on some of the outskirts it was you are in town or you are out of town and when you are out of town there is fuck all there is nothing there and it really captured those same earth tones those same yellows and everything that i was seeing obviously not as saturated as i was seeing in the film but just seeing the world right outside of broken hill i was like oh my gosh this is i can see john grant you know trying to get a ride in this kind of stuff it was really just nothingness for a long long time and i'm, I'm not trying to insult you know your country or anything <laughs> morris but 
I would just say that there are a lot of stretches because I know if I go out, you know, in the in the western part of the United States, I'm going to see the same thing. Nothing for as far as the eye can see. And I saw a whole lot of that down in New South Wales, just outside of this little town. Well, you've got to realize that, you know, Australia, which probably has very close to the same area space, same landmass as North America or the United States of America. Uh, you have a population of what? 300 million. We have a population of 25, 26, 27 million. And a lot of those people, a lot of us are living on the coast. Uh, really, a lot of the country is desert. It's uh, you know, very, very hot. And I, I say this is I have not traveled through central Australia or through Western Australia, but really a lot of it from what I understand is just it's impossible to make your way through or well not to make it but to be living continuously for the average person from an east coast city it'd be a hard slog to uh, to try and live out there so you know, I imagine that that's why a lot of that land is still sort of very unpopulated it's very fascinating to me that this film and walkabout were released right around the same time we have john grant wanting to get to the city and kind of having that fantasy of life there and having you know the the beach and all this with the girlfriend and comparing that with walkabout where we start in the city and really the city is not necessarily portrayed as well as it could be it seems more like a rat race mm. and it's all about this guy the same guy who's the caretaker, Charlie, getting out of the city and going out into the outback and then seeing how dangerous the outback is in that way. And uh, it, it's strange to me that both of these films, which to me are like the seminal Australian movies uh, coming out right around the same time and just the the harshness of the landscape and really not necessarily portraying Australia in the best possible light. Walkabout and Wake and Fright, there's been some debate over the years as to are these Australian films. I mean, really, you know, they are, but because uh, we had Walkabout that was directed by Nicholas Rogue and Wake and Fright directed by Ted Kotcheff, you know, Canadian it was often seen as well they're outsiders impressions of Australia and yet I think that they grab the essence of a part of Australia it would seem to me very very well and both of those films came at what was the start of the Australian film renaissance we hadn't had much of a film industry since I don't know I'm guessing the early 50s you know when Chips Rafferty was still a going concern there were you know the odd film made here and there but when there were uh, the conservative government of the late 60s under John Gorton had been uh, petitioned by the film industry to help support it a bit more and he said okay well we'll throw some money at it and then it came through even more when the Labor government got in in 1972 uh, that's when Australian directors, we already had technicians and the like who knew their craft very, very well. But in terms of uh, directors and storytellers, this was going to be their shot. And so I don't know if these films necessarily served as templates for them, for Australian directors and Australian writers creatively per se. But really, I think that you know, directors who came along like Bruce Beresford and Peter Weir, uh, couldn't have failed to have taken some lessons from those couple of films. They already had the, the storytelling craft and the, the technical expertise to tell these stories, and they had the desire, so they probably, I imagine, used these as, if not quite templates, but as certainly as some level of inspiration to uh, what, what they did. And 
um, you know, there were films that came out in those early years, like Stork and Peterson and Alvin Purple, all very, very different, but all telling a side of Australia and, stra- well, interestingly enough, a side of masculinity and machismo that um, that Wake and Fright uh, started off with. The only thing I would add is that one of the things that's interesting about a movie like Wake and Fight is that it is an outsider's view. And sometimes an outsider's view can go horribly wrong and it can simply pick up all of the cliches. But sometimes it can be very vivid because you have somebody who is literally coming with a new perception of a place who can see the details that if you live there, you might not notice so much because they're simply part of your day-to-day reality. But to somebody from outside are very striking and very vivid and come together to form a picture of a place that's not necessarily the one that some, like somebody who is a native would have. And I think that might have, that might be in particular in a movie like Wake in Fight, what you're seeing. You're seeing an outsider who can really look at the landscape and look at the architecture such as it is of what you see of Vienna and really focus on detail in a way that's extremely visually vivid. Are you saying that these foreign directors could really cast a, a harsh light on something? A harsh light or a beautiful light. It, it can go either way, but it's a light that is not necessarily the light that you would cast on it if you were the person who grew up there and had seen it all your life. I think you might focus your attention elsewhere. Yeah, when I was growing up, I mean, Australian cinema was just kind of a matter of fact because one of those early movies that I gravitated towards was Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, and that was just part of my film-going you know, life growing up. That was always on cable. It felt like it was one of those movies that was very important to me. So I just kind of took Australian cinema as being something that was part of the landscape, Whereas I don't think, had I grown up five years before, ten years before, that that would have been the case. I mean, it would have been this renaissance of Australian films that we see in something like um, Not Quite Hollywood, where we see how the Australian film business kind of came to light. And, of course, that focuses much more on the exploitative side of things than uh, on more of the art house kind of things. Though I think that some of that stuff kind of crossed paths, you know, especially we're going to be talking... And next year about the cars that ate Paris. And to me, that's kind of a, a mix of it's at the crossroads of exploitation and art house cinema. And I'm sure that that's not just the only one. I was going to say the cars that ate Paris was probably the first Australian film I ever saw. And my early Australian film education, such as it was, was entirely exploitation movies because that was a period when I was going to Times Square a lot and seeing, uh, you know, a lot of Australian movies cropped up there. They certainly were not billed as Australian movies. In fact, often everything that could be done to hide the fact that they weren't American until people had actually paid their money and were in the theater and could hear that they weren't. Sometimes. Other times you couldn't because they would be dubbed with American actors. Okay. How the hell did you get all this together? I saw the exploitation end of Australian cinema first, and I absolutely adored it. But a movie to me, a movie like Picnic at Hanging Rock was a complete bolt face for Australian movies because it wasn't Turkey Shoot or uh, or Carnival Day Paris or any of those movies. Right, and I guess other films that make that mixture. I wouldn't necessarily say art house, but certainly don't fit neatly into the exploitation line either. Uh, I mentioned before the name Peterson, or I think it's called Jock Peterson over in the States, uh, also with Jack Thompson. And by that stage, I think he'd become something of a superstar in Australian cinema. And, you know, once again, you have a, a story there about a guy who he's not quite comfortable with his um, 
with his working class background. So he goes back to university. Uh, not quite an educating reader type of story, but he still wants to have a foot in either camp. And he looks a bit disdainfully on the academics, but he doesn't quite want to live his life anymore in, you know, in his comfortable sort of family, uh, life and coming back every day. He works as an electrician. And that, that film had, you know, a, a whole lot of sex that would have put it in the exploitation camp. And yet it does have a whole lot of things to say about, uh, the role of masculinity and stuff that you wouldn't just necessarily get out of a straight exploitation film. So we seem to want to make films that covered both camps. And I'd really, I, as I, I absolutely adore Not Quite Hollywood. I think it's a really great explanation as to what was happening in the Australian cinema scene at the time. But I'd love to see made nowadays uh, another film that covered those films, as you mentioned, like Picnic at Hanging Rock or The Last Wave or Caddy. Uh, and some of the films from the early 80s, you know, carefully might hear you that really don't necessarily fit into that exploitative line. And really, there was, I, I thought I'd seen quite a few Australian films of that era. And yet I've been reading this book that uh, my friend Terry Frost had given to me called The Last New Wave. It was written at the tail end of the 70s by uh, a guy called David Stratton, who I guess is Australia's Roger Ebert, if you will. Um, really very well known and very well loved film critic. And he sort of did what I think was probably considered at the time, you know, the definitive story of Australian cinema in the seventies. And there were a ton of films in that. Thought, I haven't even heard of this one. What's this one? Wow. What's this one? And I thought I'd seen a lot, but I mean, look, on a, on a comparison to Hollywood, it really, the number of films that we made doesn't compare, but it was a lot considering what had happened, you know, probably the last 20, 30 years. More films made in that 10 year gap than what had been in the last 20, 30 years. So as I said, I'd like to see another film made like not quite Hollywood, but in a more conventional film line rather than just the exploitation line. Although I'm glad that that was made as well. I'm curious for you growing up being a film fan. Uh, you know, I know that you hadn't seen Wake and Fright until we started talking about doing this episode, but how aware were you of this film? Oh, completely aware. Everyone knew of it. I mean, I, in 2009, it got a cinema re-release after the film was saved from uh, being trashed in Pittsburgh by uh, Anthony Buckley, and you know, thank goodness for him. I'd been aware of it, certainly was aware of the book, and I knew that it had been made as a film, but I had no idea whether it had been released as a VHS film, uh, how much it had been on TV. I know that it had been on television at least once, and if you go to a YouTube search, there was a film critic around in the 80s, a guy called Bill Collins, who used to host the Saturday Night Movies on television, and had a very distinctive voice. Watch it, you'll, you'll, um, you'll see what I'm talking about. And I'm sure, and I know that he hosted a screening of Wake and Fright, but that might have been the one showing on television that it had. So this whole story of the print going missing was complete news to myself. And I imagine the news, news to a lot of other people who might have been aware of the film's existence. My wife told me that when she was in school, she'd been made to read the book and absolutely hated it. So we, you know, had a minor history to it in that regard, but, I really cannot think for the life of me that when it came out in 2009, had this brief cinema release here, why I didn't go see it. Because the fish out of water story is exactly the sort of thing that I love. And I watched it and I was kicking myself. So thank you very much, Mike, for inviting me to come on and do the show because it finally got me to get off my ass and go out and get a copy of the film. It's just exactly the sort of thing that's right up my alley. Well, I hope you feel like a better Australian now. 
Oh, I'm, I'm saluting the flag right now as we speak. With a pint, I hope. Absolutely. It's, it's uh, 10 to 8 in the morning here, and, you know, really, I wouldn't be without my pint at this time of day. I said I'd buy you a drink. You don't have to buy me one. Now drink it down. The water around here isn't for, for drinking. It's for washing. It's kind of like Flint. I want to know, how did you find this film Sunstruck, which one could, and I think you kind of said this to me, that it, it could be seen as an answer film to Wake and Fright. What happens when a Welsh choir master fancies the games, mistress, but she doesn't fancy him? Stanley Evans thinks he has the answer. Australia. This is what he hopes for. And who wouldn't? But this is what he gets. Sunstruck was a film that I do remember seeing on television when I was a kid. Uh, it, I think it was released in 72 or 73, and it, um, it it was shown on TV. I must have seen it about three or four times as a kid, so I do remember it from that. Harry Seacombe, who was uh, the protagonist in, in that film, was you know absolutely beloved in Australia. We all loved him from you – know, we all knew him from the BBC Goons episodes, and I think you know the Goons – May even still be replayed on radio here nowadays. So, and Harry Seacombe was a frequent visitor of the country. So we all knew and loved him. So that, that film was shown on television quite a lot here. To make the comparison between Sunstruck and Wake and Fright, it didn't occur to me straight away. But once again, this book that I mentioned, The Last New Wave, written by David Stratton, had made the suggestion. So I don't know if it was just an idea that was in his head. Or, or the filmmakers at the time thought, wow, this Wake and Fright film has bombed, but there's still a story that we think we should tell, a nice family-friendly film about a guy who's out of his depth, but we can you know, have a, a nice family-friendly spin on it and uh, everyone can end up happily ever after. So re- only reading that book is what made that suggestion. And I hadn't seen the film in years, and when you invited me on to come and discuss Wake and Fright, I was trying to search for a copy, and I found from this British uh, film distributor they were actually releasing DVDs of it. So I ordered a copy, rewatched it, and yeah, look, it's it's a bit light, but I still really, really enjoyed it. How, how did you feel about it, Mike? Well, I thought that it was fascinating to see one film right after another. It, just so folks listening at home can kind of picture this, it's about this school teacher who is in a big city. And he, again, is a British citizen who is in Australia. It's very funny because we also have John Melon again in this, and he's uh, kind of the uh, the puppet master of this whole thing. Once the teacher comes out, he decides, well, we need to have this guy stay here because it's very tough to keep people in these outback schools. And even looking at the schoolhouse, I'm just like, my God, that looks like almost the exact same schoolhouse that John Grant was teaching at just the year before. And it's almost like Grant has moved on and now they have this new guy. You know, I almost expected him to make a reference to the last guy, kind of like how, you know, Jock Crawford was like, oh, yeah, I remember the last guy that was out there. That would have been a nice in-joke. I wish I would have done that. And they do this whole thing where they like they uh, know that he's all into choir, so they start a choir with this, and they want – there's the – you know, it's a typical feel-good kind of movie. There's a big choir competition, and they pull all these strings and make it so that they're going to go to the competition. It's – you know, it's it's – 
like typical, like a, a, a Billy Elliot kinky boots type of thing where you have the going to the big city and having this big competition at the end. And I was happy that they don't win it because they're not necessarily that good, though they sound exactly like every other choir that sings in this movie. But at least they get recognized for making this big, you know, contribution to it. And they, you know, they feel like winners at the end of the day. They are the, the bad news bears after they go to Japan, you know. Right. So it, it was uh, very, very funny to see these two things one right after another because there were those just strange parallels. I, I, I feel like I make... see this movie now. I have to say it was really a beat up copy that I saw. I mean, it was just this really kind of shitty VHS transfer. So I was like, oh, well, I wonder if uh, the reels of that are languishing somewhere in Pittsburgh. I've got to say, the official DVD that's released actually looks quite good, so uh, there is a good print out there. W- one point I wanted to make, though, that I think is a little bit critical in terms of comparison between the two films, which I, maybe you forgot about, Mike, is that the Harry Seacombe character in Sunstruck, he actually goes out to the outback, not necessarily unwillingly, but he actually thinks he's going to Sydney because he sees that poster in his little town in, I'm not sure if it's in England or if he's in Wales, uh, you know, go to Sydney and he has, like John Grant, he has these visions of Sydney and on the beach and he's on the beach teaching this choir and they're all, he's, he's got his mortise board cap and he's teaching this choir and they're all buxom young women and he thinks, right, that's my vision of Australia and I'm going to end up in Sydney and it's all going to be great and he ends up sort of like Joel Fleischman in Northern Exposure ending up in, uh, you know, the little town that he ends up, he ends up in coming in this plane so like Joel with Maggie O'Connell, he ends up in this little town and he's looking around and thinking, oh, this is where I'm going to be. But the crucial difference between him and John Grant is he's you know, not going to drink himself under the table. He's <laughs> not quite sure how he's going to adapt, but eventually he throws in his lot and decides that he will. Yeah, there's even the the romance that he has with, um, I think it's Mix, uh, uh, the John Mellon character, his sister. Is that right? No, it's uh, it's another character's sister, but the the, the other the other guy who um, who suspects him very badly says, oh, "I don't want you hanging around my sister. She's only being nice to you because she wants you to keep on teaching in the school." Right. Okay, that's right. It's Pete's sister, Shirley. That, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And just she also like there's the some jealousy with uh, another character, and I was just like, "Well, this because in the book of uh, Wake and Fright, there might have been some jealousy between either Dick or Joe and." Uh, uh, why am I blanking on the woman's name? Is it Jeanette? Jeanette, Jeanette, yes. Yeah. And it's funny, too, in the, just to, to go back to the book of Wake and Fright real quick, the way that uh, John can't even tell Dick from Joe and they keep having to correct him which one is which. Right. <laughs> that there are these interchangeable blokes of the outback. Yeah, just the the way that there's that romance that's being set up, and yeah, when uh, when Stanley, the Harry Seacombe character, shows up and he's got his golf clubs and he's ready, you know, to to party down when he gets to what he thinks is going to be Sydney, and yeah, there's there's no golf courses around there, and when and I forgot, there's the other teacher who shows up at the end because I guess Stanley's done after this, and he shows up with his tennis racket and he's completely again discombobulated. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Harry Seacombe character is now a local. He's, if you will, uh, the the not evil Doc Titan. He knows the town. He knows the people. And he's looking at things. Oh, who's who's this guy coming with his golf clubs? Oh, Mr. Fancy Pants. I like that they even talk about what they can do with Harry Seacombe's character. And at one point, they're like, well, we can teach him two up. And I was like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. There is a, a slight nod of a reference to Wake and Fright. The one thing that I should have mentioned earlier that I find kind of odd in, in Wake and Fright, among the many things that are odd about it, is I almost wonder whether John Grant's girlfriend exists. I mean, you only see her in that fantasy sequence that could be a beer commercial. And then you see a picture of her in his wallet. It's a black and white picture that almost looks as though it was cut out of a newspaper. And it really does give an air of surreality to that girl, that Robin who is supposedly his girlfriend back in Sydney. You also do see that photo of her in his uh, little room, though, back at the hotel in, in Tabunda. Although I think the book actually makes it a little bit more plain that she is just uh, a figure of his desire and that they're not actually yet in a relationship. The film sort of makes you think that they are, but I think the book more explicitly states that they're not. Yeah, it seems like she's somebody that he would like to get with. So even the idea of, like, him coming to Sydney, not having any money and having no place to stay. I don't think that Robin would welcome him with open arms because it seems like she's kind of more of a fantasy, more of a, a desire of his than anybody who maybe he's even spoken to that much. And it also adds to the moment where he says that, no, there's nobody that he could call for some money. Because if she were a real girlfriend, even if he's, he's there thinking, OK, she's going to be so pissed at me and this is going to be really uncomfortable. If she were real, he could call her and just say, I need to borrow some money. I've got to get out of Typhoon. I've got to get out of the, the, the Yaba, please. But I do have a boyfriend. He's one of the nicest boys in the school. And he thinks I'm super cool. Oh, that's wonderful, Jan. What's his name? His name is George. George what? Georgia. George Glass. George Glass. Do they do they really call people Bruce and Sheila like crazy in Australia? Uh, really, the Monty Python sketch was probably the only reference I've ever heard of anyone being called Bruce, 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 Bruce. Um, but uh, Sheila, I, not so much nowadays. But I, yeah, it used to be a thing, at least in. Films and television to, to call a woman a Sheila. I don't know if it's done so much nowadays. Good day, Bruce. Oh, hello, Bruce. How are you, Bruce? Big crook, Bruce. Where's Bruce? It's not here, Bruce. Blimey, it's not in here, Bruce. It's not enough to boil a monkey's bum. That's a strange, <laughs> that's a strange expression, Bruce. Well, Bruce, I heard the Prime Minister use it. It's not enough to boil a monkey's bum in here, Your Majesty, he said, and she smiled quietly to herself. She's a good Sheila, Bruce, and not at all stuck up. All right, we're going to take a break and play a trailer for next week's show. For the first time in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, one film has swept all the major awards. Barton Fink. Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, then. Is that him? Is that one Fink? Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capital Pictures. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bond? 
Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy a song. Is that more than one thing? Okay. Devil on the canvas. 12 apple, take one. Just having trouble getting started. Wallace Spirit. Wrestling picture. What do you need? A roadmap? We all need understanding, Barton. Oh, you'll lick this picture business. Believe me, you got a head on your shoulders. And what is it they say? Where there's a head, there's hope. I'm sitting in the audience. The lights go down. Captain Logo comes up. Come on. Hey, LAPD. Got some questions we want to ask you. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Something horrible's happened. A male Caucasian, about 30 years old. Ever seen month with anyone fits that description? But, you know, with the head still on. Well, Barton, you might say I saw peace of mind. Right now, the contents of your head are the property of Capital Pictures. But, Charlie, why me? Because you don't listen! A new film by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Next week, we are going to show you the world of the mind with the R-rated film Barton Fink. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-hosts, Maitland and Maurice. Kind of sounds like a uh, comedy duo from the 70s. Add Mike in there as the straight man, I suppose. We could call ourselves Triple M. Maitland, what have you been working on these days? Most recently, I've been working on a book for my publishing company, a 120-day book called Gay Cruise, which will be the follow-up to Three Ring Circus, an exciting story about uh, love, romance, and the goings-on behind the scenes of a small traveling circus where a gay aerialist and a gay rouseabout kind of shake up the social circumstances there. Now, the Gay Cruise movie, was that adapted for the big screen and starred uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.? Sadly, it is not the same cruise. I think the gay cruise that we're working on now is a great deal more fun than the Cuba Gooding Jr. movie. Uh, it involves a former male prostitute who decides that it's time for him to get into a slightly different line of business as he's getting a bit older, buys a yacht, and turns it into a floating gay bordello with something for everyone, assuming that he's a man, of course. There's nothing there for the ladies. I think gay cruise would have been such a better title than boat trip. Jerry and Nick were ladies' men. I have a very big surprise for you. Who would do anything. Will you marry me? No. What? To get a woman. Bergoni, what the hell are you doing? Ah! We're going on a cruise, Jerry. Hot, beautiful women. But it wasn't until they got on the wrong love boat. It's a gay cruise, Jerry, not a bi cruise. It's a gay cruise. Perhaps there were just too many people who had read Gay Cruise and felt that it might not have the tone that they wanted for a, a nice Cuba-Gooding comedy. Uh, but it's quite a funny book, but probably not a, a good mass-market Hollywood picture, even in today's day and age. Well, you are doing the, the work of the angels by putting these books back out. I really do appreciate what you've done. Well, thank you, because I do feel, on top of the fact that I like these books, I think they're fun, that they are um, an important slice of gay-themed literature that is too often simply disregarded as, oh, well, those were adult books. You know, they must be trash. Some of them most certainly are, but a number of them are remarkably smart, good, interesting pulp novels that found a home at adult publishers because there weren't many mainstream publishers who were interested in 
putting out a genre book with gay characters. It's a literary book they might have considered, you know, James Baldwin or a Gorby Dahl novel. Sure, but not a book that was just a regular, fun, pulp novel in which all the characters happened to be gay, didn't have a problem with it, and had a pretty good time most of the time. And where can people pick that up? You can pick them up on Amazon, search on Gay Cruise, Three Ring Circus, Man Eater, Gay Vampire, a particularly fun title, and Vampire's Kiss, that's a double novel, and let's face it, Gay Vampires, you can't go wrong. Or you can simply search under my name, and those books will all come up. Oh, very cool. I'll be sure to link over to that over at projection-booth.com. Now, Morris, how about yourself? Are you uh, still super busy in the world of podcasting? Well, I'm making myself a little bit less busy for the next three months, but yes, I, <clears throat> I host two podcasts. Uh, one's called Love That Album, and pretty much as the title says, it's uh, a discussion that it started at every two weeks. Nowadays, I tend to run it once a month where I get a, a rotating series of co-hosts and we pick an album that we really love and sort of discuss it, I guess, in a projection booth style of way, you know, what we love about the songwriting, about the instrumentation, about the lyrics, something about the history of the performer, and just sort of try to understand a little bit more about what may have made an album so great. There's only been a couple of albums where my co-host suggested something that I absolutely hated, but I took the opportunity to think, all right, well, why do I hate that? Articulate that. So I do that once a month, but that also alternates with uh, my very good friend, Eric Peterson, who's uh, out of Ann Arbor. He does uh, a, a second episode every month where he focuses on great compilation albums, mainly in uh, punk and country genres there, his, uh, his big specialty. So we end up getting two shows a month. I'm basically taking the next three months away from doing Love That Album, but uh, Eric and uh, another fellow, Dave Blom, will be uh, hosting episodes over the next three months. So uh, if you... If your uh, listeners are interested, they can still head over to uh, lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or on iTunes, Love That Album, and give a listen to any new episodes. But we've got quite a lot of episodes in the archive if they want to check out uh, what's been done before. And I have a second podcast, which I am definitely still continuing with uh, for the moment, called See Here, S-E-E-H-E-A-R. And we've been privileged to have you as a guest on the show late last year, Mike. And that the focus of that show is to talk about films where music is somehow part of the storyline. So not necessarily focusing on musicals, although they're not exempt, but where music may have something to do with the plot line. So, you know, we've talked about Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, we talked about A Prairie Home Companion. Uh, our very first film, which was a big shock for me, was uh, selected by uh, one of the other co-hosts, Tim Merrill. Uh, the film was called uh, Hated, the story of Gigi Allen. Oh, <laughs> that was our first film. That was a big shock. For me. Whoa, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I should actually sort of you know, bring bring to light so my my wonderful co-hosts on that show. There's Tim Merrill, who uh, is a Canadian fellow living in uh, South Korea in Seoul, and Bernard Stickwell, who uh, lives in Bath in England. So we really are an international podcast, and I have to say that Skype is my friend. I think it's the most wonderful invention that allows us to be able to do that sort of thing. So, yeah, those are the two podcasts I have an association with. If I might sort of just throw in one more thing I'd like to plug, um, I also sing bass in an a cappella quartet called the Ice Halos, and uh, 
we released a CD late last year, and I've got to say that that is such a lot of fun, uh, singing every week with uh, my good friends Adam and Alex and Belinda, and uh, that's just such a wonderful thing to sort of take these great rock and pop songs and strip them back to vocals only. We've had a lot of fun with that. So, um, yeah, the Ice Halos is uh, another thing that I do. So there you go. And, and somewhere in that I managed to fit in work and family time. I am very excited. Hopefully it will come to fruition that in September I'm going to be on the See Here podcast talking about 20th Century Oz. Looking forward to that. Yes, I can't wait to talk about truckies and all those things. And, and your man Bruce Spence. Can't wait to talk about Bruce. Well, thanks, guys, for coming on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. I want to take a moment specifically to thank all the folks who have donated to the Projection Booth uh, via Patreon or via PayPal. It's been a real help when it comes to the expenses of running the show, and I really appreciate it. If you want to donate, just go on over to patreon.com slash projectionbooth, or go to the show's website, projection-booth.com, and there's a link there to Patreon or the donate button for PayPal. It definitely helps in the Projection Booth's quest to take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. New to the Yabba? New to the Yabba. Like your place? No, I think it's bloody awful. You don't like the Yabba? No.